Hello, friends. My name is Eric Cloward, and welcome to the Stoic Coffee Break. The Stoic Coffee Break is a weekly podcast where I take an aspect of Stoicism and do my best to break it down to its most important points. This week, however, is a change from our usual programs, and I'm doing, like I like to do at least once a month, an interview with somebody that I find interesting. And this week's episode, we're going to be talking with Crystal Jackson. Now, Crystal Jackson is a writer from Madison, Georgia. She has written uh, several books. She has the Heart of Madison series, which is a romance series. While that's not usually my genre, I also follow her on Medium, and I highly recommend it if you're on Medium to find Crystal Jackson. And what I love about her writing, at least the articles that I've read on, on Medium, are that she's very good about being nuanced with things. She doesn't pick one side over the other. She really likes to interrogate an argument well. But there's always a lot of compassion in her writing. And we had a great time chatting. It ended up being about two and a half hours before I trimmed some of it down. But it was really a great conversation with her. We talked about uh, dealing with health issues, dealing with the curveballs that life throw you and sometimes starting back over again and starting from bottom and how sometimes being at the bottom can be the best thing for you. And we just had a really wonderful time, and I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed talking with Crystal. If you want to find her, you can find her at crystaljacksonwriter.com. I will leave a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And again, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Crystal Jackson. This is the Stoic Coffee Break. My name is Eric Cloward, and today I'm going to be hosting a conversation with Crystal Jackson. She's a writer who is... I think you're in Georgia now, you said, or are I you, am. you are in Georgia, in Georgia. Uh, which part of Georgia? I am in Madison, which is about an hour east of Atlanta. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I know one of your books is about, has <laughs> Madison in the title. It It is. It's completely on um, the entire series is set in Madison, which I didn't even know I could write a book until I moved here. So it surprised me as much as anyone else, and um, that it's completely set in the town that I live in, which is charming. It's about the size of a postage stamp, mm-hmm. but has so much like beauty and history and culture, and I just fell in love with it. So, yeah, oh. I've been here since 2015. Okay. And what, what made you decide to move to Madison? Well, I got divorced, mm-hmm. and um, I was living in a different part of North Georgia uh, with my then husband, and when we were going through the divorce, like I knew I didn't want to live there surrounded by him and his his family um I knew I needed to make a change I wasn't particularly attached to the area that I was in and um my parents actually moved here about six months before I did so I drove through and completely fell in love with the town I actually took a wrong turn ended up in the downtown historic area and just fell in love with it and went into a few shops and everyone was so friendly and it was uh the first place in a really long time I could see myself living in Mm-hmm. And I moved within like 30 days. It was very quick. Wow, that is fast. I mean, that's faster than what I'm trying to do, but yeah. I guess <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not picking up and going to another country, so it makes it easier. So yeah, it was yeah. really just, you know, loading up a moving truck and finding a place and things just fell into place for me. But that's how I ended up over here. And it's been the best move I could have made. Uh-huh. Nice. So what is it that, what is it that, I know you mentioned some of the history and stuff like that, but what else is it that really drew you to that place? And what does it, what does it do for you living there? Because I lived in a small town once when I was in mm-hmm. high school 
in Southern Utah. And there were like 1200 people in the middle of the desert. And it, it was one of the most bizarre places I've ever lived in my life. And, I mean, <laughs> you know, and I, and I grew up in Salt Lake City, which is a really weird place in and of itself. But it, it, to me, it felt kind of like uh, Twin Peaks meets Napoleon Dynamite. And so. Well, I, I actually, um, I, my family moved around a lot. So I've lived, I lived in a lot of places in Tennessee and I lived for three years in high school in a very small town in Tennessee. So mm -hmm. my overall opinion of small towns hasn't always been positive. Mm -hmm. I found that, you know, there was always a working rumor mill. There was uh, your rep your reputation preceded you, and it didn't have to do sometimes with anything that you had personally done. It could be based on your family or a rumor about you. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, when I lived in that town, there were rumors about me that had no basis in reality. It's not like there was an inkling of truth there. It was so like I couldn't even figure out how it had been created. Yep, and I so I really had this idea that I hated small towns and I had lived in Memphis and I'd really loved it. So I thought I was more of a, a city person and actually visit New York a lot. And that's true when I'm there. Um, but so there is a part of me that really likes the city, but when I came to Madison, it's, I, I don't know, it's a beautiful in a way that is like soul soothing. Mm -hmm. um, there's the historic homes, the gardens are lush almost the entire year. Um, I'm definitely a plant person and, but I wasn't then I wasn't when I moved here. It was just the fact that it was so beautiful, but there's a cultural center. There's a artist guild and gallery. There's a lot going on here for such a small town. They have, um, festivals every quarter. So every single season, there's something, um, and it's a town that's really, I don't know. It felt, it felt celebratory. It felt like a a safe place to raise a family. I mean, when I got divorced, I had a seven month old and a two year old. Wow. And so you don't know, walking around town with a double stroller, which is just, you know, I don't know if you've ever navigated steps with one of those. <laughs> um, no, I, I was lucky I only had to do the single. Yeah. Well, and going through like double doors and, you know, in a lot of places that, you know, and I'm sure a lot of single parents and anyone with two kids in a stroller at a time, like people will let the door hit you. But no, my initial impression of small towns was very negative. And then I moved here and everyone was friendly. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that there is some, because sometimes people will tell me like the name of a family and like do a dramatic pause. Like that means something to me. <laughs> and it doesn't. And I don't care. Mm -hmm. and I really do kind of take people's character based on my own interactions with them. So somebody will drop some hot gossip and I'm like, that's nice. I don't know them because I don't care. Mm -hmm. So there, there are probably elements of that that I am not familiar with here yeah. because I, I don't care. Um, but, you know, I was kind of going through this whole reinvention of my life and I kept finding like-minded people here. And I'm, you know, like I'm not a conservative or religious person and I live in the deep south where that's mm -hmm. <laughs> unusual. <laughs> yes. Um, extremely unusual. Uh -huh. um, and, but I kept finding more people like me. And the more I opened up and the more authentically myself I was, the more people like me I found. Mm -hmm. And so I get to experience this really small, lovely, small town feel um, while entirely dismissing those elements of, you know, a particular family name means something to some people in this town. It doesn't mean anything to me. So I feel like I can live here and not be defined 
mm-hmm. by that and hopefully teach my children not to be defined by that because I'm an, uh, you know, an unknown entity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm known now because I do book signings here and mm-hmm. done a lot of promotion. I know a lot of people in the town, but uh, they don't have, you know, stories of me from high school. They don't have who my family was and um, how I grew up. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. They don't get any of that. So it's a different experience being in a small town when, as an adult, I think. Yeah. No, I can agree with that. I found that. Uh, so I, I grew up Mormon and went on a mission to Austria. And mm-hmm. my first town was a little place called Judenberg, which is in southern Austria, um, not too far from a, a larger city called Graz, and, which is basically where Schwarzenegger is from. So he's from a, a tiny town outside of Graz called Sudtal. And so Judenberg is probably like 10,000 people total, and that's spread out over a fairly large area. And it was really nice being that unknown entity. And I felt more at home there because I didn't have to put on airs. I didn't have to pretend to be something I wasn't to fit in because I was so unusual, because I was so different. I was this American, you know, riding around on a bicycle and, you know, in a suit. And it it was really nice. And I felt, like I said, I felt more at home there than I did at my home back in Salt Lake. And it was, which is part of the reason why I want to go back to Europe. And I've been wanting to do this forever. And it just, the stars have aligned that it's, it's happening. So I'm like, okay, I'm jumping on this and trying to just get everything done in probably the next 90 days. So my goal is to get there by the end of summer. So we'll see what happens. But, but I, I feel you. And I, I remember what you were, it, it was interesting to me what you, when you were talking about the whole rumors and everything like that. So the small town that I lived in, um, years later, I found out all of these rumors about me and my brothers and my sister, and though not many about her because she was really young at the time, but that had absolutely no basis in reality. Where I was just like, really? They thought that? Like, uh, because we didn't drink and party with everybody, they thought that we must have you know, our own drug supply and our own supply of alcohol and we're just partying without them. And that, we just <laughs> and that we just didn't want to share our good stuff with them. And I was just like, are you kidding me? It's it's fascinating how people think and what they'll believe Yeah, just because someone is different. And when I first moved to that town in high school, um, my dad was a minister. And so mm. um, a couple of the church members that were like a high school principal and a teacher, you know, were members of that church. And they were part of that rumor mill that started before, like they basically told everyone that I was just completely weird before I ever started the school. I I wasn't, I mean, I guess no weirder than I am today. Um, But (laughs) But you were, but you were weird and that's okay. To that that small town, they Mm. hadn't seen anything like me. Mm. And, I just didn't care. I did. I wasn't susceptible to peer pressure. I didn't really care what people thought. And so it was interesting because I was pretty, like my life was pretty benign. Like it was, there wasn't a lot going on, but there were all these rumors from the very beginning. And it was interesting to me that the adults participated in spreading them. Mm. And so it made it very hard for me to make friends and mm. to really fit in. And I did eventually find my people, but you know, that's a whole, whole different challenge when you move into a community. And, and my kids were lucky enough that they've been here the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And I can, and because I have come from that, I can teach them to be includers when it comes to new kids coming to a small town mm-hmm. that we are not the type of people that exclude other people if they're different. So I think it's an interesting perspective as an adult. I did not enjoy it as a teenager. It was not yeah. my favorite. I couldn't imagine anything worse than living in a, in a small town, but there, mm-hmm. there's a lot to, to offer in a smaller community, but I do, you know, I like to travel and, go into the city and have that kind of freedom too. I totally understand how that feels. And for me, I just recognize that it would never be a good place for me. And uh, and again, Monticello was uh, just a strange place. I think anywhere that's highly religious and has a very strong religious uh, foundation or a community, you're going to get that because they have very rigid standards of what they think should be. And anything that falls outside of that, it's just going to be really, really messy. And the funny thing was, is the kids who were most of the popular good kids were the ones who were, you know, found out later were partying their asses off and were not That's being good Mormons. True. And it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> so you being a pastor's daughter, that they probably were like, oh, that, the whole thing about the pastor's daughter is usually the wildest one. So. Well, initially it was, they were trying to figure out if I was a complete prude or if I was wild. And then they were like, well, we'll corrupt you. And I'm, you know, one of the most stubborn humans even I have ever met. And I just responded to that with like, basically, you can never see me flinch. I went that whole town, like completely unsusceptible to any peer pressure. They couldn't make me do anything because they said they were going to try. It's like they didn't try to influence. That's not the way to get me to do anything. Um, so I was so straight laced the whole time I was there because I just didn't want to ever be vulnerable around people like that mm-hmm. because they didn't even have a chance to get to know me before they had already made all of these assumptions. And I immediately, you know, figured out they weren't my kind of people. Yeah. So, and I think it's different. I think what's different for me now is like, I can see the advantages to a smaller town. Like it's a beautiful community. There's a lot, um, there's a lot to do in terms of culture and events and things for my kids. Um, I'm growing for the first time fruit trees in my backyard. We'll see right now. It looks like I planted sticks and I have mm-hmm. a garden and, um, you know, this, this really beautiful grounded centered place mm-hmm. to come home to. And I can still travel. I can still do any of the things that I want to do, but have this as like a home base and because I'm a writer, I think people expect me to be a little weird. So coming into this town, and that's what they immediately know of me. You know, I started writing professionally within a year or two of living here. Nice. I'm probably within that first year. So that's how they know me. That's how I'm recognized in town. Um, so I think there's there's a different quality to that. But there's yeah. not any. And I'm, I'm very much who I am. You know, like I, I don't have a lot of screens over that. So um I think people are just used to me nice. and I, you know, they mostly follow my page for like memes and uh, being very honest and forthright about my life. So it's not like they don't know what they're getting when they talk to me, but there's a certain allowance for like being weird with yeah. my profession. I mean, that's totally like standard par for the course. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I think it's fun. Uh, so one of the things, I don't know how much you know about Stoke philosophy, and that's what my podcast is really all about. Mm-hmm. Um, but they talk about how your reputation is something that you can't control, that you can't control what other people think of you. So don't even bother trying, which 
you can't, I mean, you can influence obviously in some ways, you know, about what you put out there and so on like that. But I find that oftentimes putting on label, kind of self-labeling yourself is a way to kind of help, help people kind of reset expectations about you. So they're, they're open to more things like that. You know, like you said, being a writer, oh, I guess she's going to be weird. And so when you're just you, you go, oh, well, she's actually not that weird for a writer. For me, oftentimes, yeah. one of the things that I will do is, so my, my main community here up in Portland is the Burning Man community. And so oftentimes people will be like, well, I don't know, this might be a little strange for you. And I just laugh at them and go, I've been to Burning Man five times. And people just go, oh, okay. Yeah, this isn't gonna be weird for you at all. I'm like, right. And it, what it does is for me, I find just that little, little nugget that I put out there for people sees me in a much more expansive way rather than being like, oh, he's this, you know, he's this guy who is a, a soft, my main job is a software developer, or they, you know, may know about my podcast, but if they've listened to my podcast, they know, they know so much about me. Cause I'm the same way on my podcast. I pretty much dish up all my dirt. So, which is good and bad in that I kind of worry, like if I ever need to get a job in software, if somebody listens to my podcast and then they go, oh my God, this guy's a wreck <laughs> because I put a lot of my stuff out there. But I also look at it as if they can't handle the fact that I'm pretty honest about the shit that goes on in my life, about my shortcomings and my failures and, and things, then they're probably not an employer I want to work with because that would mean that they are much more worried about some kind of image than they are about getting good people and doing good work. And if they if they're worried about some kind of image, I don't really care. But if they're worried about good work and they're worried about good work ethic and getting good people in there, then yeah, that's the kind of place where I want to be. So I use it at first, it kind of made me nervous, but I'm like, no, actually it's a good filter and it's a good filter to allow people to, you know, opt out early and show their true colors a lot quicker. I think that's helpful. I had a friend that used to say that about the things I would post online, not just my writing, but also just things like memes. She'd be like, don't you care what people think about you? And I'm like, this, these things I post really represent my personality. People that follow my work or follow my pages know what they're getting. That's why they're there. And it really does kind of eliminate the people that don't kind of vibe on your level um, mm -hmm. where there's not that kind of alignment. They remove their energy and yeah. it doesn't hurt me to do it. They're absolutely allowed to find people they resonate with. That's fine. Like, I don't judge that. But it also draws people that are more like me or have gone through similar experiences. And mm -hmm. I really identify with what I'm saying. And I just don't feel like like I'm not trying to promote a particular brand or image. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, sometimes I know like my social media would probably be better if I would narrow my brand. And I, and I just can't do it. I just have too much going on to try to be one particular way. Um, because I'm not trying to win a popularity contest and I'm not trying to like market myself as one particular thing. Like I'm a writer. It's not the only thing about me. Um, so I do post other things, mm -hmm. but yeah. I have had some criticism about, about doing things like that and being so open about, you know, like I write about relationships. So that's always fun. I mm. am, <laughs> but <laughs> I, you know, I'm a former therapist. I have the background in doing that professionally and, and I've made a lot of mistakes. So it's, um, there's a lot of wealth of learning there mm -hmm. that I can share, but there is that certain element of people being like, are you afraid of putting that out there? It's not that that thought doesn't ever cross your mind, but yeah, I do find that it really draws the right people to you and removes the wrong people. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny because there were, so I keep mine pretty apolitical, even though my politics are pretty left, which I have a lot of listeners who are more on the right and it surprises them when they find out that I'm much more on the left. I'm, I'm a centrist left, like I'm a, what, what you would call a classic liberal. Um, and there was one episode where I talked about how, uh, this is probably a year ago or maybe about a year ago or so deep in the pandemic. And I was talking about personal responsibility. And I said, I think that during this pandemic, if you are unwilling to get your vaccine and unwilling to wear your mask out in public, I think you're being a bit selfish because your behaviors are impacting other people. You know, we know the, how vaccines work. We know that the masks help with reducing the spread of these things. So you making an active choice to defy that is something that I consider a bit selfish. And I had one Apple reviewer just completely lose his shit on my on a review on there. Just, I can't believe you would do all this. You're selfish. And I just went off about it. And I was just like, wow, that's really interesting. Sorry that uh, that your feelings got hurt, but not, sorry, not sorry. And so for me, it was just very much a filter because it's like, if you can't wear something as simple as a paper mask over your face to help that. And, you know, when they say, well, they don't work. I'm like, okay. So when you go in to get surgery and your doc comes in and takes his mask off and just starts breathing right over your open body, you're going to be cool with that. You know, it's, well, that's, it's, it's, it's common sense. And I had really hoped that the pandemic would change kind of public health consciousness Mm-hmm. Because frankly, even before there was ever a pandemic, there was a point in my life when I was going to college that I worked in a cubicle. Mm-hmm. People would come in coughing, sneezing, blowing their nose all over. And you had these tiny cubicles. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe they, you know, I couldn't afford to use up all of my sick days because someone came in and breathed all over me. So I was really hoping that at the end of this pandemic, when people had cold symptoms when people had things they would wear a mask to school or wear a mask to the store i thought that that was really considerate of other people that if you have an active form of any illness that you protect other people from it as best you can mm-hmm. and i know only one person wearing the mask is limited help but it's still better than breathing all over people yeah. so i guess i was really shocked at the backlash of refusing to protect the most vulnerable people but then not even being willing to, to keep your germs to yourself, yeah. you know, like to have a, a cold or the flu or whatever, and to just go grocery shopping like normal and touching everything, putting your hands on it, breathing all over people to me is, is appalling too, because not everybody has the same immune system. And yeah. Um, so do you to take the sick days? So do you think that I know that I want to talk to my European friends and this has been my experience as well, but I'm curious your take on this. Do you think that the push for individualism in America is has been a big contributor of that? Do you think that that in, influences our psychology in such a way that we don't think about the rest? I mean, I I mean, you live in the deep south, so I live up here in Portland, which is much <laughs> more which is much more about hey, we are a community. We, I mean, that's why we had, I mean, for lack of a better term, we had the Black Lives Matter riots going on for what almost almost a year in front of our courthouse. And it was because they recognized that, hey, this is really shitty. You should stop pe- treating people this way. And they looked at it as a much more community base. And you living in the Deep South, it feels like it might be almost the complete opposite of that. But what's, what was, what's your take on that? It's, it's unusual. Like, I, I am very much a self-reliant, independent person. But mm-hmm. I still see the value of community and thinking about other people. And I'm I'm very far left. I always tell people, like, you know, 
I'm getting more liberal as I go. Um, and I think a lot of that, I just keep, you know, it's like Beyonce to the left, to the left. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of that is because I feel like a lot of my personal politics are based in understanding that the decisions that lawmakers make are not purely about me. And I yeah. think that that is what has made me more on the, the left of things is the fact that it is a consideration of other people. Like I'm not, I'm a pretty healthy person. Uh, for the most part, I have a, a chronic illness, but it's not something that's going to make me particularly vulnerable to something like COVID. So for me, it wasn't that I didn't think I would survive if I got it. It was the fact that I know people. I have a friend whose son had a heart transplant when he was three weeks old wow. and uh, recently had to have another one. Like I knew of people who had vulnerable children or were vulnerable themselves. Um, or, you know, had an elderly family member they wanted to protect. Like there wasn't any family that I knew that didn't have someone that could potentially be put at risk by carelessness. So a lot of my politics are formed based on other people. Like Black Lives Matter might not be personal to me specifically, but it impacts other people. So that was something that I, you know, joined protests and spoke out about. There are a lot of things like that that are issues, you know, I mean, frankly, it's like I'm, will be unlikely to ever need an abortion, but I'm going to support women's reproductive rights. Like there are a lot of things like that, that I have to say is more of a consideration of others. So when you look at that whole American individualism, I don't think having a sense of self-reliance and you can do it, you know, American dream things are wrong. I think that over the last decade or two, we've really shifted the narrative around to where we're giving a lot of attention to people simply looking for attention. People who make an entire career off being famous for being famous. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're promoting the wrong values. So it's not the individualism alone. It's that we're not making people heroes who are doing like noble things and showing their integrity. We're making people heroes for behaving badly in public. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, for me is, is what I'm seeing is a little bit of the downfall of society in a way is that we are promoting really negative aspects of individualism where you're allowed to act however you want and, and damn the consequences to other people versus I'm a person, but I'm also a part of a community and what I do matters mm -hmm. because it's not just about me. It's about how it impacts everyone around me. So it's a very roundabout way of saying like, I don't think, individualism is necessarily the problem. I feel like it's the particular take that we have on it where we have really disregarded community. And I think it's because people are so disconnected that a lot of, there are a lot of adults walking around that don't really have a sense of community. Mm. They don't have anything outside of their own household and what it affects them personally. And a lot of it's because their friends are only like-minded people. Yeah. So they're in an echo chamber of not hearing anything about what's going on in the world and really losing touch. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely agree with that. I like that. I really like that. And for me, what's what's always a challenge is that stoicism, uh, again, I guess I'm not sure how much you know about stoicism as a, as a basic philosophy. Um, one of the core tenets of that is that there are things you can control and things you can't control. And you need to focus on the things you can control. And the main thing that you can control is yourself. You can control your thoughts, mm -hmm. your choices, and your actions. 
basically your will. That's really the only thing that you have control over in this life. You don't even have control over your own body. Like, you know, you have this this chronic condition. You don't you don't want that. There's nothing you can do about it per se. You can take steps to mitigate it. You can take steps to deal with it, but you can't decide, oh, it's just gone. I want it to go away. It's not something that is within your control. And so in a way, this philosophy is very focused on yourself. It's very self-focused, but not selfish or self-centered. And the idea is that you need to be the very best person that you can be so that you can be of help to the community. That part of your life is community. We are social beings. And it, it even talks about there, like humans are social beings. And so you need to find ways to contribute to the community in a good way. Um, so for me, it's been part of my job, as I see, as I talk about stoicism all the time, is to talk about how you need to be the best person that you can be. You need to do exact, live the way that you want to, regardless of what other people think. You need to follow your moral compass. So in a way, consequences be damned, but not in a very selfish way, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to develop virtue. You're trying to develop a good character. So yes, consequences be damned, regardless of what everybody, anybody else think. You do what you do what you feel is best in this world. You have to live your life because nobody else is going to live it for you. But talking about what values are important. And I think that's where people get mixed up. They go, well, I can do whatever I want. I can live exactly the way that I want. And yes, that is true. But if the way that you want to live is being a sociopathic, psychopathic serial killer, that's not going to, you know, that's not going to work. Sorry, it's just not going to work because you're damaging other things of society. So I, I don't think that the individualistic culture is necessarily bad, but the values that people hold with that are the problem. Because when you use it to justify racism, when you use it to justify, you know, misogyny and other things like that, that's where I think people run into the problem. They're like, well, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, you can, but there's always consequences. I think the real question there is, but why do you want to do those things? Is your own sense of nobody can tell me what to do? Like that comes from such a honestly like childish immature mentality of like you can't tell me what to do it's like you have to think more logically than that like does this action represent who I am as a person so for me if I wanted to go shop in a small business you know putting on a mask seemed respectful to anyone else who might be vulnerable who might be shopping or working there and you know I'm not going to spend all day in a store it's not like I would be wearing the mask as long as the people that had to work there so I could kind of be in and out And it seemed like a very small thing to do. So I didn't feel like someone is forcing me to cover half my face. You know, I didn't have any kind of association. It was, this is a very small thing that I can do, but I know that I am taking precautions around other people who could literally die if I'm the person that exposed them to something that I know is dangerous. So I think it's the thought process processes. I think if we stop at that, I don't want people to tell me what to do. I don't want control over me. And we don't think any further than is it about control or is it about consideration? And what is the, you know, it's that impact um, weighing so much more than intentions. Mm -hmm. And what are the impacts of my actions? I think it's taking that time to stop and consider that. And I think that's the problem with a lot of the individualistic things that I see is there's not an, a consideration beyond like me and mine and how it impacts my life directly. Yeah. And, yeah, I, so and I see that as a problem because we are connected, whether yeah. we want to be or not. I mean, none yeah. of us are not. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's that se- it's that second and third order thinking. Most people only think of first order effects, how it impacts me, not if I do this, how does it impact me, and how does it impact this, and being able to think down that because it takes time, and I think people get lazy with their thinking, and you know, it's like yeah, I may decide that this is the best thing for me. Like for example, me moving to Europe, there are a lot of secondary and third layer impact. So my kids are still living here in Portland. They're independent now. My son graduated from high school last year and is he's doing a community college. And my oldest has been out for a couple of years and they moved out of my house this last fall with some friends. And so for me, it's it's kind of exciting as a parent. I don't look at it as a bad thing. I look at it as, oh my gosh, my kids are, yay, they're independent. They're They're finding their own lives. But I also, you know, I had to take time and think, okay, what kind of impact is this going to have? I'm really going to miss them. But me being over there, I'll be able to fly them over and say, hey, come over and experience this for two weeks. And that, that They're for like me, free vacation spot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I'm just like, I'm excited because I know when I, so when I went on my mission, I was 19 and I loved living in Austria. I loved being over there. It was just, even though I was doing the whole church work stuff, which I don't, I don't follow that anymore. Um, I still loved the whole experience. You know, my there's plenty of bad things that happened growing up in that church in my life. And it was a product of the culture and of my family being really fucked up. But that is one bright spot. I can look back at my mission. And even though I was out doing church work and trying to promote something that I didn't really believe or you know, quasi believed or whatever, and then later on realized there was a whole bunch of crap. And it basically it's a Ponzi scheme for a lot of money. Um, but that's a whole nother story for another time. But that for me was a huge thing. I still speak fluent German. I still think very fondly about my time there. Um, I love watching German shows. Uh, Dark, for example, I watched on Netflix, uh, 1899, which a good chunk of that was in German. So for me, I just love, I love the fact that I was exposed to a very different culture and recognized that most of the people in Austria were happier than most of the Americans I knew, especially most of the Mormons that I knew. <laughs> and they had less money they lived in apartments and condos rather than houses and big sprawl and other things like that. But they were genuinely happier overall. And I just, for me, that was kind of the the beginning of the end because I was just like, wow, here I was told that if people weren't Mormon and they weren't capitalists, you know, hardcore capitalists that and conservatives, that they were going to be miserable. And I'm like, these people are socialists and most of them are Catholic or culturally Catholic anyway. And they just seem much kinder, much more connected to everybody around them and just genuinely happier in life. Wow. Okay. This is, this is more my, my, my vibe. And so for me getting back there is, it feels like kind of going back home and I'm really excited to, to do that. It's such a but, powerful experience too, to take something that could have been really negative, but it really opened your worldview. Oh, and yeah. it didn't, you know, you didn't see what they expected you to see, where it's like a bunch of sinners you have to convert. Um, because I grew up with a lot of that. It's it's interesting yeah. how when your worldview expands, you you step outside of the way that you've been taught, but you also have that door back in because you understand how people who grow up that way think. Yeah. Because you know that intimately, but you also get that wider world perspective. So even though it's not always a positive thing, like I feel like it's controversial. I feel like I kind of grew up more of in a, in a, in a cult and I'm sure everyone in the South just, you know, <laughs> clutched pearls as I said that, but, yes. um, but you know, I grew up Southern Baptist and it's extremely mm-hmm. conservative and yep. you know, we were always 
boycotting something like Disney or, you know, mm-hmm. whatnot, um, cartoons, uh, Cabbage Patch dolls. There was always something that we were against. Yeah. And so I understand how people think like that. Mm-hmm. But I also have this outside world perspective that I think has just broadened my horizons all around. So I love that. Like you went over there, you know, to spread the word. And instead, you got to see that there are people that are living in a different way than what we promote here in America. They're happy. Because every time people say that America is the best country in the world, well, I'm not terribly well-traveled. But I know that's not true because I don't see a lot of happiness. I see a lot of division and never more so than right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that the cult aspect, definitely. So once I started, once I finally left the church and then there was some stuff I was reading up on, you know, how cults operate. I'm just like, oh, my God, the church, while not a hardcore cult, definitely checks. You know, if you had a list of 10 things for a cult, they're going to check about eight of those boxes. And it just like, okay, so yeah, it was definitely a cult. And I know that really upsets a lot of people, but I think most religions for the most part are cults and that's just how they are. And I think that anything that falls into that arena, you know, whether that's a yoga cult or, you know, whatever you want to do. Yeah, it's Peloton. I mean... <laughs> I'll tell people I'm a member of that cult. Like I'll, I'll, I'll sell people on a Peloton. Yeah. But it's the same yeah. thinking. Yeah. And it's, it's really dangerous because what I find when people have that cult mentality is that they will, they will hold on to, they will take a belief and do everything they can to promote it. Even if logically it makes no sense because they want to prove their bona fides with their group. Their in-group is more important than the truth. And that's. I mean, that's very much how I felt for so long being part of the the church was that I felt, I mean, I had doubts for so many years in my teenage years of just like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't work. But because it was my social culture, it was my tribe. It was really, really hard for me to, to get out of that. And so I left for a little bit when I was 17, then got sucked back into it. And then, um, when my early thirties, when I was still married and my ex-wife, you know, had decided she didn't want to go and anymore. She was like, yeah, I'm done with this. This doesn't work for me. And I went for a couple more times and was just like, no, I'd rather be out cycling on Sundays. And then, you know, about six months later, she's like, so when are you going to leave? And I'm like, no, no, I don't know what, what's it going to take for me to officially say I'm done with this. And it was really strange. It was this, I didn't know how to let go of that. And she gave me a book, which basically exposed a lot of the church's dirty laundry. It was by a woman whose father was the chief PR flack for the church for 50 years. And she was very, very bright. Her name is Martha Beck. And she's like a well-known writer and uh, yeah. life coach. And, and this book was called Leaving the Saints. And I read about that. I read about all kinds of stuff Joseph Smith did and Brigham Young did. And I was just like, oh my God, this whole thing was a con. He made all this shit up. I can leave. I'm done. And it just, I physically felt so light at that moment that I had to check around that I wasn't floating off the floor. I mean, really, I felt physically like I had just been started, like I'd taken a giant weight, you know, one of the, I always tell people, I'm like, you know, those statues out on Easter Island, you know, the big faces, imagine carrying one of those on your shoulders and suddenly you just like brush it off, how light you would feel. I mean, so that's what I felt like, like this gigantic weight that had just been weighing me down for my whole life. And it was gone. And it was just like, oh my gosh, I am free. 
and that freedom was just tremendous. And I've, and so people go, do you ever miss the church? I'm like, no. And then I didn't even hesitate. And they're like, well, you found another church. I'm like, why would I do that? I just, I spent half of my life feeling miserable about who I was as a person and that I was this, this horrible, horrible person. And because of this culture that I lived in, why would I go find somebody else to do the same thing to me? I'm free and I want that freedom and I will never give that freedom up. What and, has all the elements of an abusive relationship where you are yes. devalued and you don't have any self-worth. And when you're in it, you can't think of how to leave it. Mm -hmm. But once you're out of it, you're like, I will never go back. Yeah. And it, it's that whole different perspective. But it's there's something about and I, and I know people who, you know, are still people of faith that are really good people who oh, really yeah. care about how their actions mm -hmm. affect others. Or there are so many people that still practice in a faith that I left um, that are are wonderful, that I would yeah. consider them, you know, good Christians or good whatever um, belief system they practice. And that's fine. But there is such a core of like unworthiness and you don't deserve anything. And you're a terrible person, except under these circumstances that I think is really destructive. And I think it comes into parenting and it comes into the school system and it comes into, you know, we're, we're beating these kids while they're down and then expecting them to have some kind of level of independence and self-worth when they are yeah. grown. Yep. And um, I think a lot of us carried a lot of religious trauma, but because churches and religious organizations don't openly talk about that and don't own it and take accountability for it, um, couldn't feel really isolated. Yeah. But it's funny how, you know, you talk about, you know, growing up Mormon and I grew up Southern Baptist. Like I have a group of friends that we all came from very diverse backgrounds in different religions and our experiences the details are different, but the experience is exactly the same. Yes. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it took me until this last summer to where I recognized that I had been outsourcing my self-esteem to other people and especially my partners, like my ex-wife, my previous partner. So we broke up a little over a year ago. I were still roommates while I sort out this whole house thing. And she's a, she's a great person. She really is. She's very smart. I've learned so much from her and she has tried, she tried so hard in the relationship, but my self-esteem was attached to her opinion of me. And if she was disappointed, my world would just fall apart. And it was just like, man, this codependency shit is just brutal. And it's, so it's taken me basically this last year, I've really taken a lot of time to work on building my own self-esteem because I recognize that I need to be my own source of love. Uh, the, the metaphor that I use for this, I was talking to uh, a therapist that I have, you know, works specifically with trauma and because my, along with, not only with the church and all of its crap, my dad was very physically and emotionally abusive growing up. Um, but I talked about how it, we were in a session and I was just kind of riffing and what was going on in my mind. And I'm like, this is what it feels like. It feels like that I've got all this dust and these heavy elements and these dark, messy things around me. And I'm sitting there going, God, I need light. And so I'm like having all these people around me trying to trying to warm me up, completely not even saying that all I have to do is figure out how to ignite the switch. And I turn it, it's like a sun. The sun is just all these heavy gases and all these heavy metals and all of these things. And all it needs is that ignition. And once it ignites, 
it becomes its own source of heat and it radiates it out to everybody else. So, mm. you know, I so, said, so that's kind of like the, the visual that I had in my head of what I'm, tr what I was trying to do at that time of, I've got all this heavy shit that I need to somehow ignite so that I can start being my own source of love and, and start giving that out to other people. And the other thing that I recognized was that until I became that source of love and that source of self-esteem, that it didn't matter how much love anybody poured on me, it was never enough. It would never be enough unless I loved myself because it was like I had this big hole. So anything they would pour in, it just go right out the other side. And yeah. so once I figured out how to be that source of love for myself, then it was kind of like I could start giving out love much more freely to everybody else and love start coming back in more. And so the relationship has gotten better. It's it's still challenging because there's old habits and patterns and being roommates yeah. sometimes you just trigger each other and it's like, ah, crap. But on the whole, I feel much, much happier with me as a person because I'm not as dependent upon what she thinks of me. and. That has been a huge thing. And so I see that a lot of kids from, you know, those kind of backgrounds don't know how to have that self-esteem because they've just been, they've been given all these me arbitrary measuring sticks that are external to them about what makes them a value. And so they try to do all of these things to measure up and they do them and they still feel like shit. And they're like, well, I did all of these things. I, you know, I went on my mission. I got got married and, you know, and in the church and all of these things, and I'm still miserable. What is wrong? And I think until, like you said, until churches recognize that what they're doing is really damaging, they're being antithetical to their mission. But I think that a lot of the higher ups, their mission is not about inspiring, leading people that way. It's about control. It's about controlling these people and about making sure that things work the way that they want and feeding their needs. I mean, Mormon Church has hundreds of billions of dollars in charitable organizations, they say, but they've never given them out to any charity whatsoever. So I'm well, like, and un untaxed, untaxed yes. dollars. So they're not contributing back yes. to the communities that they're in either, which is, you know, it has its own set of, of problems, regardless yeah. of how people feel about taxes. There are a lot of really large entities that are, you know, not paying any taxes while your average household yeah. is. Um, has that heavy burden, but yeah, there's, there's a lot and it. For me, it took trauma therapy to, yes. to be able to see some of my triggers mm -hmm. and cycles. Cause I figured out that being happy and peaceful is weirdly triggering for me because yeah. I'll get anxiety and I'm looking around for the source. Like I'm like, okay, what's wrong? What's wrong in my environment that I'm having this, this feeling of anxiety and I'm going through like a checklist in my mind and I'm like, no, everything's going really well. And it's that because it's so outside of, you know, growing up with a lot of struggle and discord and then, you know, leaving the church, going through, you know, bad relationships and a divorce. Like there's been so much struggle that when I'm really happy and peaceful, it's funny that that is triggering and I have to acclimate that to that. But, you know, you think you acclimate to all that trauma, you yeah. learn how to navigate it and you come up with some real unhealthy ways to do it, but you still figure it out. And yeah. so it's, having to teach my body to be comfortable with this new normal. But, you know, it took trauma therapy for me to see a lot of my triggers. I just always thought, I thought some things were personality that weren't personality. After all, it was yeah. behavioral patterns because I was constantly staying triggered. But it's so interesting that when things get peaceful, it's like you think you're just going to be happy from that point forward. And then it's like, oh, no, it's a lot of discomfort in becoming a healthier person. Yes, absolutely. I I have had those same sensations. So. 
now you talk about having gone through trauma therapy uh, and you had been a therapist before. Mm-hmm. What made you transition out of being a therapist or what was it that, that shifted you over to being a writer? At the time that I was a therapist, um, I had my master's degree and I was working um, with children and families and I had interned um, in addiction and I felt like I was working all the time. You know, I was on call for, you know, suicide calls and all these emergencies. And I was on the clock even when I wasn't supposed to be. And I was giving everything that I had to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything left over for me. My ability to take care of myself completely tanked. It is one of the most vulnerable times of of my entire life is that I felt like I was trying to save everyone else and couldn't save myself. And having kind of a rescue mentality from growing up with a lot of childhood trauma is not a good fit for being a therapist because, you know, you need to be able to maintain that wall a little bit with clients. And I couldn't do it. I was working with kids and I worked with a lot of sexual abuse cases, which I had no training in directly specifically for that population. And almost every case they gave me was that. And I was falling apart. I had all of this information I was being given. I couldn't do anything with, you know, other than to help them process that it was in my head. Um, There was so much like secondary trauma from that. And I just couldn't take care of myself and do it. And honestly, becoming a therapist was the practical thing I did when everyone told me you can't make a living doing something creative. Mm -hmm. And so I had been actively discouraged my entire life from pursuing anything creative. And I mean, I'd been writing since I was in elementary school. Okay. Um, I would write poems and plays and, you know, little articles in our little school newspapers and And peers, teachers, family members, everyone told me, well, that's, you know, you're talented, but you can't live off of that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they were like, get a normal job. And then I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? And I'm like, well, everyone tells me their problems anyway. So, you know, I ended up becoming a therapist. And then when I left it, I didn't even leave it to be a writer. I literally just took the first job I could find. And it was at a photography studio that thankfully has gone through bankruptcy and closed all of their studios. If they if it had burned to the ground, I would have brought marshmallows is how bad I hated that job. I I wow. never I never thought a job could be so bad, but uh-huh. it would be working from first thing in the morning to almost midnight. And like I'd get wow. a 30 minute lunch break. It was back to back to back to back all day long, run off your feet. And then you weren't allowed to be sick. So there was a day where I would throw up between sessions and they would make me go back out. And I left at lunch because I couldn't stop vomiting. And their corporate headquarters in another state, I phoned for the rest of the day trying to make me come back into work. Just call after call. It was such a toxic environment. So when I left therapy, it was literally just like a job that would pay the bills, which I did very short term as a seasonal employee. And then I worked at a bank for a while. I was literally just scrabbling to survive. Mm-hmm. And then my divorce happened. And I was still just working administrative, just trying to figure out my life. And I started writing a book. And then I started uh, blogging online with a journal that I would submit articles to. And um, I hadn't written for a lot of my 20s. I just... You know, it's so secondary to getting a degree and, you know, paying the bills and never, never stop working. And as a single parent and working part time, it was the first time that I was able to take the time 
and just keep my overhead low and just start writing. And I've been doing it professionally for six or seven years now. It was absolutely possible to earn an income in a creative field. But I had this whole idea that it wasn't, Mm -hmm. um, that it wasn't possible and that I couldn't do it. So I ended up becoming a therapist. And it's such a, you know, it makes you wonder what would happen if we encouraged people with what they were naturally good at in the first place or what they were naturally drawn to rather than telling people you can't do that, telling them like, well, you should figure out how you can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I was very involved in music and theater growing up. I didn't pursue it because I was afraid because I was supposed to get married and have kids. And I'm like, how can I get married and have kids if I'm, you know, if I want to be a singer, if I want to go on Broadway, if I want to, whatever it is that I want to do. And so I, I never really pursued it. And, and for me, it's one of those things I'm slowly getting back into because I forget how much I love it. And then I will. So for me, my voice is, is great for Broadway, like Broadway songs, almost like stuff from Sweeney Todd, for example, from uh, Stephen Sondheim. There's just certain songs that when I sing, I just feel so alive. And it's just like my voice is built for those songs. And it just feels like I hit that flow state and it is just so absolutely wonderful. And I miss that. And I'm, I'm slowly getting back into doing that. I've been practicing piano every day since the new year. You know, I, I sit down and because I'm, I'm a pretty decent pianist, but I'm terrible at reading music. And so I've been like taking songs and actually reading the music and going, okay, so I play everything by ear. And so I've just been forcing myself to do these things and it's hard, it's uncomfortable, but it's been really absolutely wonderful. And I, I think all the time, like what would have happened if I'd had a mentor who said, you know what, you can do this. You can be a professional singer. Let's figure out how you can make that work. And had really encouraged me on that. And my parents were actually pretty good about it. They were pretty supportive. But because of that whole self-esteem belief of like, oh, I'm just not good enough to do this. I knew I had the talent, but I didn't believe that I had the drive or the tenacity to actually follow that through. And so I ended up in marketing and business got my degree in that with a music minor and then somehow fell into programming. And I, I'm good at programming because programming is very abstract and logical at the same time. It's if you can understand music and do basic geometry and algebra, you're probably going to be a good programmer. It really reshapes how you look at the world when you realize like there are all kinds of skills that translate in different career directions. I just don't think a lot of us got an idea of the broad scope of careers that were out there that we could have tried mm-hmm. or been encouraged toward uh, based on aptitude because I think like a, you know I feel like my entire generation was pushed toward like get a college degree find a mm-hmm. practical job that makes you a lot of money it really wasn't about loving your work or finding something you were really good at yeah. it was about status I think mm-hmm. more than anything else mm-hmm. so but I was both algebra and geometry. So I'm sitting here going, <laughs> well, it's a good thing that I didn't choose that career because I, I barely passed those classes. Yeah. And see, for me, geometry was the easiest class I had in high school. Um, when the teacher was late for class, there were a few times I came in and it said on the board, I will be late having this errand to run because it was right after lunch. Um, Eric, go ahead and start teaching on this page. <laughs> and I just laughed. I was like, okay. My um, geometry teacher in high school used to talk to me like I was the dumbest person he had ever met. Just the look on his face every time he had to deal with me. And it's just like, I actually did okay in, in you know, in math classes in college because I had good teachers. But I just remember him looking at me like, you are the dumbest person I've ever dealt with. 
And it was just so disempowering because it was like, I am trying my best here, but that disdain mm-hmm. you're aiming at me, it's not helping. Yeah. Yeah. But I was, I mean, but I was, I probably did frustrate that man with my just total lack of like, I don't want to be doing this. I'd rather be in my English class learning yeah. about literature. So <laughs> nice, nice. So um, now I haven't read any of your books. I will be honest about that because I have like 200 books on my must read list. And now I have to get rid of most of them because I'm leaving the country. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what your books are about and what has inspired those books and what you get from writing? Yeah, sure. Um, I wrote a romance series. And when I wrote it, I didn't set out to write romance. Like I read it. Um, but I think I kind of had an idea about romance as a genre that a lot of people have, which is a very um, really tough stereotype that it's not as good mm-hmm. as other forms of literature, which is a very common thing that I now have to deal with as a romance author. But um, so I didn't intend to write a romance. I intended to tell a story about a woman reinventing herself in her life. And it became a love story, but it became a love story set in a town that's just as much of a character as the actual characters in the book. And I really wanted to tell stories about people who don't have it easy with relationships and maybe they've made bad choices in the past or just really haven't gotten their shit together, really figuring themselves out and not just being completely devoted to relationships, but really finding themselves and opening up to the possibility of a healthy relationship when maybe they haven't had that before. So really that's kind of how I wrote the series and I started it. um, The second chapter of the first book came from a dream Mm -hmm. that I had. And it was just an image in the dream uh, of a setting uh, with an owner talking to um, an elderly lady in an antique store. And it was very, but it was very visceral and I I didn't know what it was. So I wrote it down and I'm thinking, is this a short story? Like I had never done anything longer than that. Um, It wasn't a poem. I couldn't figure out. It wasn't an article. Um, And then it became this entire series. And I wrote four books in a year. Wow. And before that, I had I had fooled around with a mystery and it was uh, it was a a historical one that I was writing. And it remains a very bad first draft (laughs) where that is. I have pulled it out and worked on it a little bit every once in a while. The story is solid. The execution is not. It was the Mm. first thing that I wrote before I even did the romance. And it was something I played around with. And it's just very a lot of um, telling and not showing. And then I wrote the romance, but I wrote those in a year, um, which gave me very unrealistic ideas about what it would take to continue to write books. Yeah. Um, it, that was, I will never, I don't think I'll ever write like that again. I couldn't stop writing it. And I felt like I was channeling it. I felt uh-huh. like I was, I wouldn't think about what I would write beforehand. I would sit down and all the scenes would be there like they were happening. And I was just watching Mm-hmm. And um, and then the pandemic happened uh, midway between, I want to say my third and my fourth book coming out. So, uh, or no, between my second and my third. And so I published three self-published poetry books because I was left unsupervised into my own devices <laughs> for too long. My kids were home, so I couldn't focus on the, the manuscript I was working on. Plus it involved a lot of travel and travel was changing every day. And I was afraid it would be dated by the time I actually got it done. So I put that aside and I'm like, I have all these poems I've never done anything with. Maybe I should do something with them. It's literally, like I said, left to my own devices. So then I did three poetry collections and collaborated with an artist friend of mine who um, did all of the illustrations for it. 
So yeah, I just wanted to tell healthy love stories. And I think at the time that I wrote those, I hadn't really been in one, but I knew what they look like and I, and I knew what they would feel like. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to tell a story of someone who didn't lose themselves in it. Cause I was really bad about doing that thing where you get in a relationship and you just kind of lose track of yourself because you're so heavily invested in that couple mentality and so I wanted to tell stories that were the women didn't do that. They mm. could kind of stand on their own. And so it you, wasn't about need. It was about the desire to have a healthy relationship, about it making the life better, but not defining it. Okay. So do you, I, to me, it sounds like the books are very autobiographical as well as aspirational. The first one starts with a woman moving to Madison after her divorce. That is really <clears throat> where that ends as as far as (laughs) uh characters i mean her her you know ex-husband in the book is completely different than than mine um but yeah i think that sense of personal growth though and that finding yourself absolutely i felt like there was a little bit of me in in every single character though my friends vote for one character over another that's more like me but um it was a little bit of me and all of them because it was that sense of going through hard things and figuring out who you are and then just being that person and not being who society has told you you should be. Um, which I think for women in particular is, is difficult, um, right. particularly as we age. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 41 now and I feel like I, I am a part of a generation kind of redefining what that looks like. Yep. And what kind of interests we do. And it still floors my mom every time I pick up a new hobby or want to learn something new that I'm doing those things instead of making my entire life about my children. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think it's healthy for them to see that, you know, their mom is also a person. Yeah. And my life hasn't stopped because I had kids, but I think it's particularly when aging comes into it is what people expect you to do. And when they expect you to kind of take a, a step back when really you're just getting comfortable, you know, living. So that's kind of how that worked. But yeah, there's a lot that is autobiographical as far as the personal growth journey. Mm-hmm. And it was fun to write. I mean, there's a lot of banter. I mean, it's it's got some rom-com elements. Um, the first one is a slow burn romance. The mm-hmm. second is enemies to lovers. There's a friends to lovers. And then there's a little bit of a romantic suspense in that last one. But it was just, I really enjoy the genre as a reader. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a lot of fun to write in the end. Nice. And I think it kind of helped me believe in healthy relationships more than I actually did at the time I was writing them. Like mm-hmm. I was kind of writing a fantasy of mm-hmm. like healthy relationships. And, you know, when the experience I was having dating were very negative, um, every time <laughs> I had to go on online dating, I would, <clears throat> you know, figure out yet another layer to um, what's out there that's not positive. And, and I think it, it allows a little bit of, of more open-minded thought. Mm-hmm. There's still good people out there. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. So de- I like that, that idea of, of it being kind of a fantasy of, Hey, this is what I want. And I think that, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think that's probably a brilliant way to do it. Well, I mean, I knew what healthy relationships look like, even if I hadn't been in one, mm-hmm. you know, it's like how if you come from a dysfunctional family, you still know what a healthy family looks like. Um, you know that you want one. So I was a little bit the same, but it, I think it made me more hopeful. It made me a lot less bitter. 
Um, and I could kind of go out and, and have that optimistic attitude if they're still good people. And, you know, your last relationship doesn't have to be your last one. Yeah. You know, because I always hear people after breakups be like, that's the end. I'm never going to do it again. And Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And that's one thing that's been challenging for me processing my last relationship because I felt like I was... I, I was basically the one that, that kind of destroyed everything, not because I wanted to, but simply because I didn't know how to operate within and have a healthy relationship. But understanding that and making sure that I, I take these things that I recognize um, and going into another relationship or the possibility of going to another relationship in the future has me nervous, but I also recognize that I'm not going to get any better about it if I avoid a relationship that you know it's like i i'm equal parts determined about doing something like uh, getting up and, and learning about something and doing it as well as experiential so i have to get in and experience things that's how i learn things much better and i'm not afraid to just kind of jump into things and figure them out um i know a lot of people you know want to plan and 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 then do it and i'm much more about Minimal planning, then jump in and do it because I'll figure it out as I go. And that's just kind of how I've lived a lot of my life in many ways. And I'm trying to get better about planning things. My son is a great planner. He just is great at going, this is what I want to do. This is what I, how I want to be organized and do it. And I don't know where he gets that from because his parents aren't necessarily the best at those kind of things. Um, but he'll, he'll say, oh, I'm not that organized. I'm like, dude, you're the most disciplined 19-year-old I think I've ever met. You know, so both my kids are on the spectrum and they thrive in structure and routine and organization. And they have me for a mom, bless their hearts, because I am not. Yeah. All of my organization is mental. Yeah. Outside of my head is chaos. And so I, it's an adjustment for for all of us to yeah. because they do. They they're very organized and structured and, you know, they like the planning and they don't really like surprises. And I, like I said, my organization is only up here and yeah. it's a loosey goosey organization. It's chaos. And, yeah. and and I'm happy that way. I'm happy with less structure. They're happy with more structure. So it's interesting how you produce kids. And it's like, you didn't get that for me. Yeah. That came from your dad. Yep. <laughs> and I, and for me, it's also funny because I, I do well in structure. Like I had no problems in, in college and high school. I mean, I, I always got really good grades. It was very easy for me. Um, but I found that I find that my ability to place my own internal structure and organization is not that great. Like my office right now is, is purely chaotic. And a lot of that is because I'm, I've been taking stuff out and selling things. I've been posting stuff on eBay all over the place. Cause I have a lot of audio gear that I'm getting rid of. So I don't even have that excuse. This camera is aimed at what's clean. <laughs> if we go too far in either directions, you're going to see all of my son's Hot Wheel tracks he left in the floor. Well, I don't know why. And then yeah. the disaster that they left my kitchen in before they left. So, yes. And I, I'm not moving anywhere. So you're doing great. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty fun. Um, so one of the things that I really appreciate about your writing, so I most, mostly read your articles on uh, Medium. And then I was, you know, see your memes and stuff on Instagram. But one of the things that I really appreciate your writing, and, I, and I'm curious your take on this, you're really good at nuance. You do a fantastic job about when you're writing about something, whether that's, you know, talking about how men referring to women as MILFs or getting back out there and dating, finding the silver linings. I've found that you have a very strong voice, 
but a light touch. And what I mean by that is that you don't come in and go, you guys are all a bunch of jerks because you do blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but you, you take a pretty balanced approach of just saying here, this is something that, that you need to think about because you're, you're like, I guess what we talked about earlier, you're missing the second and third order effects of what you're doing. So you, you're only seeing the first order effect, you know, you're telling, you think that you're telling this woman that she's hot and you think that it's a compliment, but you're missing all the second and third order things that happen from that or how that can be taken. And you, you're kind of missing the larger picture of things. And I'm curious, what, how did you develop that? And what would you say, uh, you kind of take an approach to try and see things from a larger picture or a more macro perspective? I think when I first started writing, it was easier for me to write those angry articles um, because I was so unhealed. And I think that that's where that comes from. It's that hurt people hurting people that, you know, it's calling your ex a narcissist, whether or not they qualify one. It's that attitude of seeing other people as the problem and the enemy. And at a certain point, you know, with healing and time and experience, and for me, a lot of therapy and trauma therapy in particular, it came to we really are the common denominator in our experiences. And so it's being willing to take a very hard look at that. Like my last relationship I thought was going to be my last relationship. I was so sure of him and I haven't been sure of anyone like that. So it was, it was really hard when it fell apart and I was able like at first, you know, there were things about him that I could say, you know, led to that breakup. And it took longer and it took more healing to sit back and say, you know, I was going through a chronic illness diagnosis that I didn't have. I didn't have the illness at the start of that relationship. I'm sure that made things challenging because mine comes with mood disruptors and it increases my anxiety. It makes me sensitive to rejection and it's cyclical. So it's happening every couple of weeks. Um, so I can look back now and see how hard that must have been for him in the relationship. So I began to take accountability um, for even the way my past trauma triggers impacted how I was within the relationship. I could see that it wasn't a matter of it being all his fault or, or all mine. Um, I didn't take on responsibility for his issues, but I was able to come, come through and, and, and really catalog my own, but not just in that one relationship, but in all of my relationships. So I think it's that taking a step back where you can heal and trauma therapy really made me more compassionate for other people. You know, I'm going through childhood trauma and I'm realizing my parents were very young parents, like kids straight out of high school. And I had my daughter at 30. So it's, it was a different experience. I also had more support than my parents had. So every step of going through my personal trauma has given me more compassion for even the people that hurt me because they, they did their best at the time and it might not have looked like anyone's best, but it was. And so having that level of, of, of compassion, but I think it takes a lot of time and healing and a willingness to look at the hard things about yourself. Like I could list my flaws. Um, and I think in, in a way that's sort of easy to do, I think it's a lot harder to work on them. Um, I think it's a lot harder to put yourself in the uncomfortable position of communicating when you're feeling insecure, particularly in relationships. I think it's harder to be vulnerable with people when it's easier just to pretend everything's okay. 
Um, I think that there's a big difference between being self-aware and actually being willing to make changes um, and and really get into that. So I think that's how I've I've done it is it's made me a lot more compassionate, but it's because I'm doing this really deep inner work where I have to say, like, I see these problems about myself and I can have compassion for all the things that made me the way that I am and still really address how that affects relationships. And a big thing for me was never wanting to ask for help, uh, not really trusting other people fully, mm-hmm. um, feeling like I had to do everything myself, that I seemed like I was really open and I would choose emotionally unavailable people because I was emotionally unavailable, but they were more emotionally unavailable. So I could point to them and be like, see, like they are way worse than I am, but it it disguised my emotional unavailability because it looked like I was so open when in reality, the way that they were kept me safe. Mm -hmm. And so I could look at that and say, well, you were attracted to a whole lot of people who built walls because you could keep up your own. And so I've had to learn even just in casual dating situations to be very open in a way that I wasn't before. Um, even about long-term expectations, like, do you want to get married again? Things I was always afraid of asking. Or, you know, what do you think about having kids? Or is it okay? Like, I'm done having kids. You know, just being really open about very basic things that I had shied away from. You know, I was so used to kind of making myself what other people needed me to be. Mm-hmm. And just playing out those trauma scenarios in adult relationships, basically. So, I think it comes down to healing more than anything else, but also a willingness to take a really hard look at yourself and say, like, I don't want to continue to repeat this pattern. I have to be the disruptor. I have to change it. Um, Because like you say, you can't control anyone else. Um, You can only control what you do. And for me, it was the choices I was making, the red flags I would ignore, the conversations that were difficult that I just didn't have. And now I have to face all of that. Like I can keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm going to keep having the relationships I've had. And the last one was very painful. Um, it took me as long as I was in that relationship. It took me just as long to recover from it. Wow. And I think people thought I never would. You know, I was just going to keep writing about grief and um, and and sometimes still do. You know, there are still things that are hard about that um, because I I genuinely tried, but I also wasn't healed enough. For that, for the trying to work. And and I don't think, I don't think he was either. So I think it's a matter of um, taking that step back and being able to completely heal. But I think, I think that's a a big part of it. I think that's why I can go in and kind of have a more balanced perspective as to what's, what's going on, because I understand that it's not like a matter of good guys and bad guys. There's no black and white thinking to it. You know, it's going on online dating and you see, you know, a lot of really unhealthy people. And instead of being disparaging about that, having a level of compassion because everybody's on there trying to connect in some way, whether that's for love or sex or whatever they're looking for validation. Mm -hmm. Um, I like taking that step back and saying, you know, there's something we can learn from everything. But in the end, the only thing that we can control is ourselves and what we do next. And does it reflect the kind of person that we want to be? And it's helped me grow into the person that I am now. And I feel like I am capable of healthy relationships, Excellent. you know, and it's, it's, and I think it's because of that level of, of compassion and being able to take a step back and say, well, 
it turns out every relationship I've had wasn't the other person's fault. So, <laughs> Yeah. So to, to recap, there were three things in there that really struck me that I, I liked what you said. First was that we are the common denominator in all of our relationships and our lived experience. Second, that we have to be the disruptor in that experience because we're the only ones who can control that. And then third, not only do you talk about having compassion for the other person, but that by developing compassion for yourself, it increases your compassion for other people. And I think, you know, and healing that and having that compassion for yourself allows you to be kinder and gentler to other people as well. Because um, those are all experiences that I I definitely agree with and I've definitely found. So thanks for Well, when you start that. seeing, I think when you start seeing your own triggers and how innocuous they can be, it can be something that you didn't even realize impacted you. When you start seeing the small things, like for instance, I'm in a relationship and someone is having a really hard day at work. So they're, their communication with me changes tone because they're having a hard day at work. Well, I'm going to overthink that to death and I'm going to have anxiety because I have all of this abandonment trauma and I have all these issues. So I am so hypervigilant to the tone shifting. that's yeah. immediately like, Oh God, you're going to leave me. And, and, and the fact that something so small could, could set me off where I would have an entire like emotional day thinking that, you know, someone didn't love me me or someone was going to leave me all because they were having something that had nothing to do with me and how yeah. how small of a, of a behavior it was where it wasn't that they were even doing anything wrong but my interpretation of it was so extreme when you take a look at something like that and you realize just how much your own trauma can impact you in the tiniest ways where something so insignificant can set you off you start to look at how other people behave in the same way that maybe their reaction makes no sense at all to me, but there's a good reason for it. Yeah. It's like and there's, say, a good, there's something behind it. There's a quote that said, people are ignorance against their own will. And it's, it's, it's very much that, that most people do things because they just don't know. And not that they don't want to know for the most part, although some people choose to be ignorant. They don't want to learn about something because they're afraid of that work that goes along with that or that it will change their belief system or their worldview and they, they want to hold so dearly to it. But I think you're right. I think that, that most people are acting in the way that is they think is in their best interest that is going to get them what they want. And for me, recognizing my triggers about things, it, as you're talking about this, I'm just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> we should be linked at the arm with your experience. Like you're my Siamese twin in a lot of these things, because I recognize so much of these things that I do or that I've struggled with and which allows me, I hope to have more compassion for other people in their difficult situations, because I don't always know what they're struggling with. I think the, the older I get, the more I have let go of any kind of anger and resentment. But I think that there is still that strong accountability. Um, like my parents find it upsetting that I'm still going to trauma therapy. I have mm. an actual like half day intensive coming up where we're going to knock out a whole bunch of things in one day. And most people would be like, I'm, I'm probably going to cry for four hours, but I'm excited that I'm ready to do that. Um, mm. the, the things that I've previously avoided, like I'm like, okay, let's go ahead and, and go through the last of the memories that we really haven't worked on. Because I'm doing EMDR, which I don't know mm -hmm. if you have any experience with that, but it's, it's such a powerful trauma therapy. But I know it's upsetting to my parents to know that childhood trauma is an aspect of that because they genuinely love their kids and they mm -hmm. really 
tried to do what was best. And they looked at their parenting as much gentler than their own parents parenting of them, even if, even if it wasn't gentle at all. And so, you know, it's, it's that, that since I've done trauma therapy, it's like, it's given me, like, I'm less reactive. I could have healthy relationships, have compassionate relationships with a family. I'm very different from, um, but I've let go of so, of so much of that resentment because you see the nuances of other people, you know, like it took me a long time to realize like my dad will say, I love you, but his, his thing is showing it by mm-hmm. doing things. Like if he comes over here and builds something for me, he's uh-huh. about to build my kids a tree house. Cause we always had like best tree houses nice. growing yeah. up. And that was his way of, you know, for someone who had a very hard time connecting with his daughters, he would do things like that for us. That was his way of showing love. But we, of course, as kids didn't receive it that way. We saw him through a lens of like yelling, you know, being the disciplinarian. We didn't always see the ways he was trying to show it, but I can see it now, yeah. you know, when he will take, you know, time out of his schedule and work out in the hot sun for hours and, you know, make something for us. You know, he made my garden beds this year and it's, he does that and that's his way of showing love and it may not look the same, but it's understanding like there are layers to people and there's so much of that intergenerational trauma that gets passed down and a lot of people never in their entire lifetime address it. So I think being able to hold space for those people, even though they never will, is important. Yeah. Um, Yeah. My dad was very much the same way. He, he was a builder. He grew up on a farm, and so anything that he wanted, he had to make or, or figure out how to do it. He was very, very poor. But yeah, he would make stuff all the time. We had tree forts, and we had a we had a zip line in my backyard one time. Um, oh, no, my dad has one now for the grandkids. And he actually, nice. he spent all of August, the hottest month in Georgia, mm-hmm. helping me turn a storage building in the house that I, the property that I bought. We took a storage building, and we converted it into a home gym and office for me. Yeah. Um, I my parents were like, that. look at all that amazing storage. And I'm like, that's not what I see here. <laughs> so, you know, putting up insulation, putting up walls, putting down floors. And he made me go in there and, and that man about worked me to death. Um, but he has all the skills to do that from a, you know, a previous career in construction. So he would, he put me to work, but he spent an entire month out there every single wow. day, all day long, not even wanting to stop to take breaks to eat. And it was his way of, showing love by doing this project for me that, you know, it's like, he doesn't come out and use my home gym. It's like, I mean, he could if he wanted to, but he did it because it was something I wanted. Nice. And just to watch that time go into it. But it it's different because, you know, a few years ago, I might not have recognized that that's what he was doing. I might've completely taken it for granted. Mm-hmm. And now I can be like, Oh, this is him with every day that he shows up saying how much he loves me. And how he wants to do this thing for me, even if he doesn't know how to connect in other ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the last thing I want to ask about is I know that you talked about your, your health conditions and stuff like that. And you've been pretty open on your, your uh, Instagram account, at least I'm, I'm sure in the other place about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious. So I want you to kind of talk about that a little bit and how you find that impacts your life and what kind of tools you've you put into place to deal with that because it's, it can be incredibly disruptive in your life. And I know this, it's not something that that a lot of people talk about. In fact, you talking about it was the first time I'd ever heard about it. Um, but it's not surprising. And I think I have some friends who struggle with some things along those lines as well. So, um, 
yeah, I'm curious if you want to kind of talk about your experience with that tools you use to, to deal with that. And, um, I guess what you've learned from it. Yeah, sure. Um, I have premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD and, um, it shares a lot of similarities to bipolar disorder, except it is tied specifically to the menstrual cycle. Um, and it's of a 28 day cycle. Um, it's usually around day 14. So immediately after ovulation. Um, but, you know, within a week or two before an actual period, um, all of the moods change. Um, so it is considered a neuroendocrine disorder because it is a failure for the brain and the endocrine system to communicate. It's almost like an allergic reaction to normal hormone fluctuations. So I can be producing the same hormones. My body just uh, no longer knows how to deal with them. So um, some people have this from puberty on, and I didn't. I started getting symptoms in 2019 out of the blue. Um, I was on my way to the ballet to see the Nutcracker. And I was having a good day. Everything in my life was going well. I had just signed a book deal for four books. Um, I was in a really great relationship that felt really healthy. Um, I was really happy. I was getting financially stable. Everything felt really good. And I sat in the ballet and I had my first suicidal thought. And I never experienced anything like that. And they were extreme and they were dark. And it was such a strange outside of my body experience that I did not explain it. And my attempts to do so failed miserably where I just couldn't communicate how extreme that that, that had been and how dark. And so it became an ongoing struggle where every month I would have these really dark times and then I would bounce out of it like nothing had happened. I'd return to my normal self, high energy, uh, self-motivated, get a lot done, um, just very, you know, creative and upbeat and constantly optimistic. And then it would plummet again. And it became so extreme that I started tracking my moods in this mood journal. I got in and some subscription box I had in the mail and I just started doing it where you would color your mood for each day. And it took two months and a pattern emerged and it would be the same 10 to 14 days every single month. And so as a former therapist, I had heard of PMDD very briefly. It was brushed upon and skipped right over. Um, I knew it wasn't PMS. Like I had experienced that. I think the first time I ever really had PMS, I was like 25. I'd never had it. I honestly thought women were making it up. And then at 25, for whatever reason, my mood started going like where they wanted and I was like, oh, that's a real thing that women actually have. Like I hadn't experienced any kind of dysregulation. And then I did. And um, so with the PMDD, like I, I, I was pretty sure that that's what I had. But the first gynecologist that I went to was a man who told me in his 30 years of experience, women blame hormones, but women don't really have hormones. And I was at the time I was like, well, in my 30 whatever years of experience as a woman, let me tell you that we do having been through two pregnancies and periods every month, like it's not a subtle experience. You can feel the chemical changes in your body. We do mm -hmm. have hormones um, and all of science agrees. Um, so it was really disempowering, but I left his office and he was like, yeah, you probably have it, but it's, you know, like just really minimized it. And so I ended up going to another doctor who took me through the entire differential diagnosis, ruling out everything else. 
Um, and a lot of people don't get diagnosed because they don't bring in a journal of like, here's my mood for the last two or three months every single day. And there's not a test for it. So without that, a lot of times women are getting diagnosed as bipolar that aren't actually bipolar mm-hmm. um, or getting diagnosed with some other um, issue when that's not really the problem. So it comes with uh, fatigue, um, brain fog, it's really intense, um, sometimes body aches and pains, depression, anxiety, uh, suicide ideation. And I was having these, oh, a lack of impulse control. And let me tell you, the worst combination of symptoms you can have is suicide ideology and a lack of impulse control. Those two things together, it was terrifying because I didn't just want to die. I had no ability to control my impulses. So, and I would have these like angry spells. I yelled at my kids a lot that year that I was getting diagnosed. And I just have to tell them like, before it was managed, there was a lot of apologizing happening in this house because I couldn't, I had no ability to control my anger. And I isolated a lot to kind of keep myself in check and protect other people from me. I felt like a monster. And then I, um, I got a good diagnosis and I ended up going on antidepressants cyclically. So I only take them from the 14th day of the month until, you know, two or three days into my period when I become myself again. And so I take it half the month and I don't have the suicide ideation and um, the depression is managed. Um, the anxiety is still present, um, but I almost go through manic phases like an you know, before the PMDD cycle, like my moods are really high. I get a lot done. I'm very productive. And then it all falls away and I have body pain. I have fatigue. And it's not just fatigue. It's that intensity of where you need a nap so bad you're going to cry if you don't get one, like that exhaustion, like you haven't slept in days, except I'll have slept good the night before. And it's first thing in the morning and all I want to do is sleep. Um, The brain fog makes it hard to concentrate. And I have you know, work for myself. I have this job I have to maintain. And um, it is extremely debilitating. And they say three to 5% of women have it. And it is so underdiagnosed. I don't think that's anywhere near the correct percentage um, because a lot of women don't know that this exists and they get dismissed or they're told, you know, you're getting close to menopause. And menopause is the only thing that'll stop this. Yeah. But they think things like perimenopause can actually start it too. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, especially with, as you get older and you get closer to those years, like they literally get dismissed as just symptoms of, you know, of perimenopause when it's not. Um, it's made me very good at self-care though. <laughs> forced, forced self-care because my yeah. body will shut down. So I've learned to go to bed early and take naps. Um, I do take the antidepressant cyclically. I've learned that I'm more have to be more careful about what I eat, so I tend to eat healthier. Um, and I'm I'm already a generally healthy eater, but I know that if I eat like a sugary, junky breakfast, I'm going to have an energy crash more than if I have like overnight oats or something a little more substantial in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I went. <laughs> I went to a naturopath and did herbs for a while, none of which personally helped me. Um, I do take some vitamins um, that have been recommended in literature, um, like uh, any of the B vitamins, magnesium, iron supplements sometimes, depending. 
So I've gone through the literature to see like what is actually proven to help. And so there are a lot of those things that I do, but I've also learned that the, the tendency with PMDD is to really isolate because you do feel like a monster who could take out your little rage monster on anybody at any time. Plus, you know, your projection sensitivity, you know, all this anxiety, all this overthinking paired with a certain amount of depression. So in the beginning, I kind of kept myself away from people. And then I was on a yoga teacher training retreat. And my PMDD cycle hit in the middle of it. And I kind of tried to prepare everyone. for. And they said I was like a different person when I came down to breakfast the next day. And what happened is, you know, they they were like, you know, just sleep today. You don't have to do any of the activities, you know, just take care of yourself. But every time I walked downstairs to get a drink or got up to go to the bathroom, I was being enfolded in people's arms and just hugged. Not anything even said, just like, we're here if you need us. Let us know what you need. They would come check on me when I would sleep half the day. And then, and by the next day, I felt better. So when I got home, when I would go through PMDD cycles, I would call friends and schedule lunch during my worst days. Mm -hmm. It made me get up and get dressed and fix my hair and like get out of the house for a little bit. But I would make myself have more social contact. And that's actually been shown to really help with PMDD is to have that connectivity because your tendency is to isolate. But what you really need is that sense of community and support. Because it's such an extreme thing and it makes you believe things that you know aren't true. So I have to, for two weeks in the month, be like, well, we're not having thoughts about any of the relationships in our lives or anything going on. Like, I can't believe what I think during this time. I have to be aware that everything is influenced by my anxiety. And it helps me manage those very destructive thoughts. So I don't make big decisions during those weeks. I try to keep my, you know, work uh, load to a minimum of what I, you know, have to do. Um, it means the house goes to hell in a handbasket around me while I'm in a cycle because I have to lighten my load because I have a limited amount of spoons to be able to function. Yep. So, but it's made me slow down in a way I never did before. I was always such a type A high performer. And then I have a chronic illness that makes me, sit down and shut up for two weeks at a time. And um, I have to really intentionally take care of myself through it. Um, every single month, because the symptoms are different from month to month. I mean, they share some similarities, but I never know if it's going to be like a high fatigue month or the last couple have been high pain months, which is, has been unusual for me where I just hurt every day. Um, headaches. Can be a feature um but it's been learning what works like i for a while there i had a chiropractor went to an acupuncturist um i still see my chiropractor i still get massage as regularly as i can um, because everything will just hurt i'm always like one big body of tension every time he's just like this is ridiculous <laughs> the <laughs> level of stress you're holding in your body is ridiculous every time and it doesn't matter um you know, if I've exercised or not, but movement helps, exercise helps, yoga in particular, even on the really hard days where I can't hop on my Peloton or do a, an intensive workout, yoga is helpful because yeah. it, it helps me stay in my body um, when my mind kind of want, wants to check out of it. So, that's, yeah, that's it's. That's interesting because one of the things with trauma work is very much about learning how to be back in your body. And that's something that I've had to learn because 
when my dad would lose his shit, you kind of go off. I, yeah, go off and you're like, okay, I'm I'm here so I can function, but it's very, you know. Yeah, I feel when I'm when I'm triggered, I feel like my vision narrows. My mental capacity mm -hmm. drops dramatically because I'm usually I can pull words out of the air just easily. I have a very large vocabulary and it's usually really easy. And I can tell when I'm triggered because when I'm when I reach that point, I have a really hard time enunciating of getting certain words out, anything more complicated than, you know, I'm mad or upset, you know, whatever. It, expressing thoughts like that just kind of go out the door. So did you find that working in trauma therapy that it was helpful to it, do that? It was. But what's really interesting about that is that there is a link between having trauma and having PMDD. They said like mm. if, uh, women with trauma are six to seven times more likely to be diagnosed with with PMDD. I read that in some study earlier this week that that there is a huge link. They don't understand it. They don't know if one makes you more susceptible to the other. Um, but there's definitely a link. But I started EMDR therapy. Um, I had just gone through this really difficult breakup. You know, I had just gotten my diagnosis. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot at one time. So I found myself back in therapy and she suggested the EMDR. And I, even though I was a therapist, I, you know, it wasn't something that was really taught at the time that I got my degree. It wasn't something I understood very well, but I was like, I am willing to try anything. And she'd pointed out, you know, I'd already had talk therapy experience as as a therapist, but also as a client, um, I had a lot of coping skills. That wasn't the problem. Well, the problem was is I had this long history of trauma and my body remembered it. It's like the, that book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's like your yep. body knows. It doesn't matter how much you mentally can explain things away or have compassion for the people that did things to you. Your body is reacting to all of that experience for the rest of your life if it's not healed. So... I found it really interesting that now I know when I'm activated because I'm so in tune with what's happening in my body. Every single EMDR session, she would be like, where are you feeling this as you're telling me this story? And it was almost universally always in my chest. And as a mm -hmm. child, I used to always feel it in my stomach. I had constant stomach problems. Mm -hmm. um, but now it's moved. It's like right in my chest. And so when I start feeling that tightness in everyday life, you know, I can sit through it and breathe through it and do the things that I would do in a trauma therapy session to deactivate, basically, to take to take my nervous system to a calm place. Um, so it's interesting because yoga does the same same sort of thing. It really does help you stay more present in your body and trauma therapy just really tied all of that in together because I was doing trauma therapy at the same time as I was taking this yoga teacher training kind of, which I didn't even take to teach. I just wanted to learn more about um yoga and I wanted to get more I wanted to get better at it but I also wanted to get more in touch with my body because I did that same thing I would dissociate that was always what I would do um when things got really hard that there was only part of me functioning and the rest of me had taken off into fantasy land or, you know into you know some kind of internal world and just mm -hmm. left so uh, between trauma therapy and yoga, I really learned how to be present in my body and to be aware of what was happening, not just what am I thinking and what am I feeling, but where am I experiencing it physically? Nice. Yeah, I just, 
I did yoga for many years and then haven't for a long, long time and just actually started today. I got up and I was scrolling on Instagram and there was this thing. It, was, it looked like it was about calisthenics, but it was a yoga thing. And I was like, you know what? I should look back into that. They had a deal with their special app and all this stuff. And it was like 30 bucks for three months and it had all. And I was like, you know, they're probably really good for me. Um, and I'm at a place. I, so I sprained my ankle last fall. And then I had some shoulder issues that I've just finally gotten. I'm about 95, 90% right now. So I was finally, so I couldn't do anything like that for a long time. And so I did it today for 20 minutes and it felt great. And I just remember feeling when I got done. I had kind of this blissful, warm feeling. And I was like, oh, this is nice. And then I hopped on the rowing machine for another 20 minutes. And then, yeah, that was kind of a start to my day. And I'm just feeling good. And I can't wait for the weather to be a little bit nicer so I can hop on my bike. I used to be an avid cyclist, like, you know, 50 mile rides, you know, a couple of times a week. So I want to get back to that as well, because I found that when I was, when I got divorced, that was my, my way of processing everything. I would go out on a ride three or four times a week for, you know, 40, 50 miles. And sometimes I'd be riding along crying because, you know, just getting all of this shit out and... So I think that I, I, even though my podcast is very much about the mental aspect of life and about changing your thinking and other stuff like that, I'm recognizing that within my podcast, I've neglected the physical side of things. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up your, your diagnosis here with your, is it, say it again. PMDD, it's premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Because I think that Taking care of the physical can help with probably about 60 to 70% of the mental. Because if you feel like shit, you eat like shit, your chances of feeling good and not feeling depressed about things are going to fall dramatically. If you feel better, that's going to take care of a lot of things. Because if your body doesn't feel good, it really impacts your mental state. And I think that, that that's something that I definitely want to start talking about a bit more. I've also been listening to a book by Ben Hardy. That's his name. And the name of the book is Willpower Doesn't Work. And he's talking about how as much as you may want to change your internal world, which is incredibly important, you know, you, you definitely need to work on that. Changing your external environment is just as important, if not more important, because making sure your environment is conducive to actually being able to accomplish what you need to is something that that in the self-help industry people ignore a lot like if you just think better think more positive you can overcome everything and it's like well yes and no if the environment is not set up for you to be able to do those things and not supported for those things it's going to be very very challenging to do so i mean like you talk about how you now have this workout gym in on your property i'm sure that help, makes it so much easier for you to work out every day whereas if you had to get up drive to the gym every day to do that with two kids, it's going to be much, much more of a challenge. So by changing your environment, which you did, the changing something that you did have control over, you have now set yourself up so that it's much, much easier to take care of your body. Oh, and I think it's that bringing intention into your life too, because you're right, like you can have all the willpower in the world, but if your environment's not set up to it, it makes it so much harder. But I think part of it is we have such a hustle culture of, of pushing yourself. Mm -hmm. And what I really liked about trauma therapy, what I liked about yoga, what I like about a lot of those things that address, you know, trauma and issues that kind of combine the body and mind is that 
if what your body really needs to do is, is rest, the worst thing that you can possibly do is push it. Yeah. And I think we have such a culture that wants to say, you know, just do it and just push through it and um, keep going and, you know, compartmentalize your pain or your yeah. exhaustion. And, and you do that until your body breaks down and you get sick or whatever, and it forces you to stop. And I just think how much healthier we would all be if we listened to those cues before it got to the point of illness or, or some other kind of breakdown of, of being really respectful of the signals we're getting from our body is part of being able to shape your environment that way, because otherwise you're just reacting to everything happening around you. But when you're intentionally shaping your day to what, what feels good to me and what works for me within, you know, within what you can do with work schedules and responsibilities and kids, um, I think having that, bringing that intentional element to it allows you to be able to think of like, what does my mind, you know, what do my mind and body need at any given moment? I mean, like certainly having a home gym here is much easier than me driving to it. But on the days, like exercise helps with my condition, but on the days where I absolutely just can't do it because the fatigue is so bad, it's mm. also that having that compassion for this is the thing that I need to do now. And when I can, I'll get back out there and do that. Um, mm. But for now, it's like it's nap time. And having that awareness of not pushing ourselves beyond what we should be doing um, and kind of prioritizing that self-care. But I just don't think the mental and the physical can ever be, they really can't be separated. And from a philosophical point of view or just a metaphysical or whatever you want to categorize it, we experience the world through our bodies. You can't separate that. You can't have an experience in this world if you aren't doing it through your body. You can imagine all you want, but that's not in this world. And I think that people get, whether unintentionally or not, unconsciously, I think they kind of forget that. They, you know, and I know it sounds like a very basic principle, but I think in some ways we forget that. Oh, we can, we can create our own reality. We can, you know, I just have to change my thinking around it. Yes, yes, for sure. But the way that you're experiencing the world is in your body. So take care of your body. Make sure that it's healthy. Make sure that it's the best it can be so that you can have the best experiences around. And that's one thing I've been working on lately. So I quit drinking alcohol about three weeks ago. Me and my ex-partner got into an argument. I felt like shit afterwards. And I went down and I got drunk. And I was just like, this is not helpful. And this is me not facing up to these hard issues. And so yes. I was like, okay, just said, I'm going to take a month off and then reevaluate after that point. But for now, I just need to give myself some space on that. Along with that, I just, I found that and we got into an argument a little bit later, you know, a couple of days later. And I wanted, I wanted to drink so bad. I was like, okay, I'm texting my friends. I'm going to drink, but I'm not going to drink. I'm just really frustrated. And I was not behaving in a way I'm proud of. I feel like, a, like an asshole and I'm really sorry. And I'm just, uh, but I didn't. And I was really glad that I didn't. And I found that my thinking over the last three weeks has gotten much clearer. I've lost five pounds. I've also just stopped eating refined sugars because I found that it kept upsetting my stomach. And since the alcohol wasn't upsetting my stomach anymore, because I wasn't drinking it anymore, that was incredibly noticeable when I have refined sugars because my body's highly sensitive to sugars. So I stopped doing that and I just feel so much better. I've still struggled with insomnia pretty badly. And I think it's just because I have way too much going on in my life that I'm trying to get organized and take care of. But Aside from the sleep aspect, everything else feels like it's getting better and it's really, really nice. And I feel like I'm much more in tune with my body. I found that it was really disrupting a lot of things in my life. You know, and my ex-partner was kind of frustrated. It was like, you know, why are you doing it now when we're not together? And you know, you could have done this years before. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. 
accepted, but I wasn't ready to give that up. I wasn't ready to let go of that crutch. And now I am. And I know that it's, I know that it feels like this is something that has to do with you. And in a way it does that you felt like you're not worth it for me to have taken care of this before. And I, I totally understand her feelings on that. I wasn't at a place where I could have done that before. And now I am, unfortunately. I do feel that for her, though, because I have been that person that it's like, yeah. it, it's hard to be after after the fact, see people really get it together and do the things that they could have yeah. done. Yeah. But I mean, that really goes both ways because I'm a much better communicator now than I used to be. And I'm sure I have exes who are like, you could have used your grown up words anytime yeah. and you didn't. Um, but that yeah. is hard. It's hard to see people grow, but when they didn't grow with you. Yeah. But it's timing really is everything. You have to be ready for that. Yeah. And I've made a lot of growth over the last, I mean, I mean I'm growing all the time, but the last year and a half, uh, some pretty tremendous things that I was able to finally resolve. Still plenty of behavioral triggers that are still there that I'm working through. And, and I totally get how she feels. And I'm like, yeah, unfortunately I can't go back and change the past, but just because I was like that in the past does not mean that I'm going to continue that behavior. And I'm doing my best to change it. Like I've always had that part of me, that aspect of me that has wanted to grow and change has never changed. My yeah. ability to change and the things that I understand and am able to change. Now that's the part that has definitely changed. Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me is when I started making those really big shifts and came into that level of accountability, it was, it was difficult because we weren't on speaking terms anymore, but I actually reached out to my ex and, and had told him like, I, blamed you for a really long time and I don't yeah. anymore because I see and I pretty much went on a laundry list of all the things that I was accountable for that yeah. I hadn't really looked at before because I just wasn't in a place to be able to see it so many of them were trauma reactions I couldn't even but I didn't I didn't know if that was going to be like welcome <laughs> or uh how that communication was going to go but it felt so good to say you know I take accountability for all of that I realize it now I would have done things differently if I knew then what I know now but yeah. I can't, so I can own it and I can apologize for it. But in the end, the only thing I can do is go forward. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was a weight off for, for me to, to do that. And I, I think it helped me be able to forgive myself because I know that I messed up in, in different ways, but I also know almost all of it was unintentional. So. Yeah. And that's been a big struggle for me and that I, I feel like I, I've definitely blamed myself for most of what went wrong. And that for a long time kept me down. It was like I was carrying this, this guilt and this shame in a, in a backpack and it was weighting me down so much. And I've learned to offload a bunch of that. It still pops up quite a bit where I feel like, man, you know, she was a good woman and I really messed up this great relationship and everything like that. But I also just have to recognize that as I've learned more about myself and have been becoming more about myself, that for a lot of the relationship, I wasn't being myself. I was trying to figure out what she wanted and trying to bend myself into that. And so not because she expected that, but because that was just how I knew how to operate. And she would be pissed off about that. And she'd be like, stop doing this. Just be you. You know, if I don't like what you want to do, then that's my choice. You know, that's something that I make a decision about. Um, and so it's been a real challenge to let go of a lot of that guilt and shame and and move on with it and i do find that i i punish myself still from time to time 
So when we get into an argument, I'm just like, see, I'm just the same old asshole that I always was. And then I have to go, no, I, I have made a lot of big changes. I still have these bad triggers and I'm still going to keep on working on them. Even if, you know, even if I never see her again after we move out, but you know, this is kind of how it is. Well, and I think being able to go back and look at the things that you did well is also a big healing movement because I did mess up a lot of things, but I can look back and say, like, I genuinely was a very loving partner. I was very open with my affection. I tried really hard. I would have, you know, if he'd wanted to do couples counseling or something like that, I would have been open to it. Um, I was very much of, I would have worked on things. I can look back and see those things now. Um, And when I first started seeing the things that I was accountable for, it was very much just beating myself up for all these things that I did wrong as if I had, had I been able to change them, maybe the outcome would have been different. But then I was able to see that I did a lot right. And that I think if the relationship had been stronger, there's the things that we had gotten through together versus not being able to withstand some of that conflict because it wasn't a strong enough relationship. Um, none of it was insurmountable. It was just made more challenging. Yeah. So I think having that perspective on, there are a lot of things that I did well too. Um, and being able to kind of own that too, I think is a part of that grace of looking back and being like, well, I mean, it's a learning experience for sure. Um, and I'll be different the next time because of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I need a, a little bit more distance until I'm, I think I'm going to be able to do more of that, but I think that I did try very, very hard. I just think that I didn't have the tools a lot of the time to be able to make the changes that I wanted to. Yeah. And, you know, but again, I'm also, I'm, I'm eternally optimistic in that I, I believe that I will figure these things out, that I can figure these things out and I'm just never going to stop. Even if, even if I never figure them out, still working on them and working on that process is just, it's like, I'm a dog with that bone. I got to keep working on it and take my breaks from time to time, but keep working on that. Because if I don't, then I feel like I'm letting inertia take me down a a way that I want to go. It's like, it's easy to be lazy and, and just kind of let things slide. And I don't want to ever be that way. I always continuing to try and move upwards, even if it's hard, even if I never reach who I want to be before I die, it doesn't matter. It's still that journey. And I I feel good doing that. And so I'm going to continue to do that. I never want to reach a point in life where I go, yep, I'm good enough. I can just stop right here and, <laughs> and you know, I'm not going to work on really anything in my life because I think there are already too many people that do that. We don't need any more because I yeah. love it when people, and this is especially true in online dating, will tell you the thing that's wrong with them. And it's not a personality thing. It's always a behavior. And they'll tell you like, I do this thing and it's awful. And I admit it's awful and I'm not going to do anything about it. And that's, that's it. And I find that so frustrating for people to reach that point of self-awareness and then stop. Like that's the only step. Yeah. And it's like, it's great to be self-aware, but if you're not going to do anything about it, then what's the point? Because we should yeah. always be growing and changing to a certain degree. I mean, as long as we're alive, yeah, there should be, absolutely. there should be growth, even if it's subtle, even if it's tiny shifts to, to not endless self-improvement, but just learning and Mm-hmm. Um, connecting at deeper yeah. levels with people. But I always think that's funny when someone tells me like, I'm this. And I'm like, that's something you could work on. Were you interested in doing that? I mean, I'm glad people are very forthright. You can make your decisions based on that. But I always think it's funny when someone owns something that's really a terrible trait. They'll be like, I'm a cheater, but 
sorry. And it's like, well, it seems like a thing that you could, you know, work on, but yeah, good for you. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Keep diving in and going deeper. And because I mean, we're not dead yet. So yeah. Yeah. And for me, I find as I get older and I get wiser that kind of the next, the next big thing for me that I've been really thinking a lot about is the idea of metacognition and how, how to really take time to think about how we think and to change, not only just find neat strategies about things or, you know, little tactics that work for you, but how do you change your whole mind in ways of thinking and how do you shift those paradigms in, in very dramatic ways? And that's been a big draw for me. So I've been recently learning about like, like the Socratic method, which is the idea of how do you create questions to yourself that interrogate your own thinking, find your own logic flaws and so on. So stoicism was born out of people who came from the Socratic, Socratic tradition. And so I was like, but they're kind of a set of principles. There are a lot of really good tools, but I was curious about what was the thinking that went behind creating those tools? And for me, that's been a really a fascinating idea is how do you, how do you improve not just the skills and, and tools that you have, but how do you change your whole mindset of how you think and view the world in a very dramatic way? And how can you do those things? And so for me, like studying Socratic method, understanding linguistics and stuff like that has been interesting. Um, my last podcast episode for me was one of my favorites that I created because um, I'd read a, a quote that went something along the line and I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but what I came down with was there are no problems. There are only choices. And for me, I know that when I consider something as a problem, I have this abstract shape object in my mind and that where all my worries and, and things get attached to that, all of the, all of the issues that get attached to it, it becomes this big kind of almost amorphous blob of, of messiness. And it's, it's almost like a, it almost becomes a physical type of thing. Whereas if you can avoid that as long as possible and in any situation, be incredibly present and say, what do I need to choose at this moment that will help me get that done? Whether that's short-term or long-term, what are my choices? And it's always about what are the choices that I have and focusing on choices. Kind of like the way I liken it is like if you're, you're walking through a maze or you're playing a video game or something like that. Yes, you need some long-term strategy about things, but you're very present in that moment of playing what is happening in that game at that moment. And if you can kind of view your life that way of like, what are the choices that I have as opposed to what are the problems that I have to overcome? And here you're focusing on all the negative aspects of things. Whereas if you're just focusing on the choices, you don't care if it's negative or positive. It's just, you need to make choices about this thing. And even though that feels like it's, it's semantical for me, that created just a giant shift because it was, a, it was a very different way of viewing the world of like, how can I look at everything as a choice and never as a problem? And I know it's going to take a while before I can actually implement that and come up with a full strategy for that. But I like, that's kind of, for me, a next evolution type of thing is like, how can I get out of just hey, this is a cool hack, this is a cool tactic to how do I change my thinking on mass so that I can make big steps that I can do bigger and better things rather than just making tiny little incremental changes all the time. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I don't know, that kind of 
resonated with me with things I've been reading about lately with with relationships. It's like taking in information and just seeing it as it is and then making your choice accordingly based on the information and not drawing conclusions or making judgments, but just evaluating the options, paying attention to what you're seeing and then making a choice. And that is such a huge um, departure from a way a lot of people approach um, interactions with other people. But I think it's interesting that when you break it down just to choice, it's, you're not making an evaluation about somebody else. You're literally saying, does this work for me? Or does this not work for me? Does this align with what I want or does it not? Absolutely. And how everything kind of comes back to that idea of, is this what I want for my life? And you choosing based on what's right for you and not making it about other people and not making it, it personal in that way. Yes, that's I great think that is a powerful shift. Yeah. 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 How you, how you encapsulated that? Yes, that's exactly it. It's about, and the one of the, so I, I wrote it all out and I used a lot of stoic principles and kind of said, this is how they apply in your life. And one of the biggest things was you only, if you're only focused on choices, then what you do is you find those choices that align with your values and your principles. And yeah. you say, how well does this align with my values and principles? And if it doesn't, you don't make that choice. You don't judge it as good or bad. You just say, that's not a choice that aligns with my values and principles. And then you're able to find one that does align with your values and choices. And it's, well, and I think when you ask about how I can have like a softer touch when I talk about dating things, I think it's taking that element of judgment out of it. And, and going back to that, everything is about the choice of what works for you and what doesn't. And I think that's why it's easier to write about human behavior in, in so much as it does come down to what works for you and what doesn't align and acknowledging those things. But I can see how that could be applied to everything. Yeah. You know, and those choices are so powerful and they seem small in the moment, but like you're a choose your own adventure of your life, you know, yes. it depends on what you do as to where you're going to go next and, and where you end up. So it, it matters more than you ever think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was and I knew that I struck a chord because I mean, I'll often get, you know, messages from people like, hey, I really like this episode, yada, yada. There's usually, you know, one or two here and there. And, you know, at random times, you know, I'll repost something and people go, oh, yeah, I really like this episode. I got several emails and messages like within, you know, an hour after posting it, people going, oh, my God, this episode. Thank you so much. This is exactly what I needed today. And this idea was huge. You know, and I had one person who's been an avid listener just go, okay, I like a lot of your episodes, but this one just, this was definite home run. And I was just like, ah, yes, it's, that's what I was hoping for. And for me, it, would, it felt like it. I got done with it and I was like, oh, this, yeah, this is exactly what I needed. And so I've just been still processing that idea of how can I make choices? Everything, trying to look at choices, letting go of problems. And it's, it's a big mind shift because we're not wired that way. Our how our culture, how our language, everything is set up is not in a way for us to just look at life as choices. It's always, what are these problems? It's always like, oh my God, this problem. And you label it and you come up with it. And we, we, and so it's, it's not an easy thing. One of the most popular job interview questions. Like you have to imagine a problem and how you would solve it. Like everything is from the perspective of something disrupting life and what are you going to do about it? But the, the emphasis is on more of the problem than what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And how do you factor in those decisions and how do you make them authentic to who you are as a person? 
you know, factoring in your own ethics, but factoring in what you want for your life also and how your choices define who you are more than maybe anything else, definitely more than our words. So it's, it is a powerful shift. I can see how that would resonate with a lot of people. Plus it takes some of that anxiety out of it. Uh, It's not about like how many problems you have or the nature of them. It's, it's that whole thing of if something's happening or if it's happening to you. Like yes. if you see it happening is to you, you feel attacked, you feel defensive. If you just see it as happening, then it becomes a you know a choice to make, a problem to solve, a a, a thing to consider. It doesn't feel like a personal attack. Yeah, um, and that was one of the main points in it. So in Stoicism, they have this idea called amor fati, which means to love your fate, which means to love everything that happens to you, not just tolerate. The, the things that you don't like and love the things that are great, but that you learn to love everything that happens to you. And for two reasons. One is that everything is happening to you, whether you like it or not, you, whether you liking it or not is simply your judgment of that, but it's going to happen no matter what. So you can either, as much as you hate it or love it, it doesn't matter. The universe does not give a flying rat's ass about it. It's going to happen. So you can waste your time hating it, or you can just do your best to try and love everything that happens to you. And you're not always going to succeed. You're still going to be frustrated at times for sure. But the more you have an attitude of, I love this thing because it's happening to me because I'm still alive and I'm doing life. And the second is, is then when you accept everything that happens to you, you also start to see the advantages of it. Because if you're constantly looking at the fact that you're short, for example, and I use this in my podcast, if you're short and you're constantly frustrated with being short, you're worrying about something you cannot change whatsoever. So rather than worry about the fact that you're not tall and start to see the advantages of it. To me, a fantastic example is Peter Dinklage. Uh, He played Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. That role is still one of my all-time favorite characters ever created in, you know, in all of television history because it was a brilliantly written role. He played it incredibly well. And... It was it was amazing to see this character, and I'm sure he's he's very much like this in real life, taking advantage of the fact of who he was. He didn't sure there were things that he didn't like about being a, a dwarf, you know, a little person, but it was just like, hey, this is what I got. Let me work with it, and found all the advantages that went along with that. And to me, that that's fantastic. And so the idea that if you can love everything that happens to you, then you you can start to look at everything like as just information, as just things happening, and you have a choice to make within it. And you get rid of that judgment. And I think yeah, that's I've, the hardest part. I think I've often thought that if I didn't have PMDD, I wonder if I ever would have slowed down because I was always just so goal-oriented and so mm-hmm. like high achievement focused. And I pushed myself so hard that it makes me wonder. It's like if I didn't get this chronic illness, would I have been as in touch with my body? Would I have listened as much? Would I have done the trauma therapy or would I have just kept driving myself because I could manage and I could always manage? Um, there have been all these silver linings that you wouldn't think would come from something that is a debilitating disorder, but at yeah. the same time, it's made me so conscious because um, I know a lot of people that they have very little treatment um, for their symptoms and they just kind of fly by the seat of their pants every month. And I take mine very seriously when it comes up. It's very intentional for the entire time of what I do and what I don't. Like I pretty much 
have a fairly light schedule this weekend because I'm in the middle of a PMDD cycle. It's like I take my medication, I take my vitamins, I rest. Um, I do the things that are going to take care of me. But I wonder if I had not had this diagnosis, how long I would have gone pushing myself as hard as I did. And if I ever would have slowed down or if I had to be kind of made to slow down, um, <laughs> the very good possibility, because I do have to learn things the hard way, um, that I would have just kept driving myself right into the ground and not even recognizing that that's what was doing. And um, so I think it's I think it's powerful to take the things that happen to you. And some of them can be really negative things that are terrible and that really do impact your quality of life and still say, how can I turn this to my advantage? What can I find that I can learn from this experience, even if it's a negative experience? Like, I don't particularly feel grateful for my PMDD, but I do feel grateful that I've learned how to take care of myself better. Yeah. I feel grateful for a lot of the things that I've learned going through this. And I found I had a bunch of very ableist ways of thinking because I'd always been so healthy and so high achieving that I had this way of looking at the world where I wondered why other people couldn't do that. I've never had any kind of illness that made basic functioning difficult. So it made me see the world for all these people that have had some form of a disability or a mental health struggle. It really opened my eyes uh, that pulling your uh, yourself up by your bootstraps does not work under these conditions. And and I needed to see that. And apparently this is how I'm going to do it. But I think it's important to still find those things that you can learn, even with something that you don't like and aren't grateful for and really don't love the experience, still finding the things like, how can I learn from this? And how can I find some kind of silver lining and take better care of myself and, and get through to this. Or, you know, in the event of doing a podcast or writing something, like how can I get this information to other people so maybe it helps them? Mm, excellent. It's like I read a, a, a blog the other day by Chris Gillibo, who uh, a travel blogger, and he had a conference here in Portland that he ran for about 10 years. Um, wonderful guy. And I love the, basically the gist of the blog post was, so you've had a, a massive disruption in your life. You got dumped by your partner. You lost a job. You know, you you missed an opportunity that you were really going for. Congratulations. What now? And it was like, congratulations for your misfortune because now you have something new. What's your next opportunity? And he will, he'll be, sometimes speak at different events and stuff like that. And he was talking about how he was at this one event and somebody was just like, yeah, I just got laid off from this job and I'm really stressed out and my life, oh, you know, woe is me kind of thing. And he just, he said his normal impulse was to go, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. That's really too bad. He just goes, congratulations. And the person was like, what? And he goes, congratulations. It sounds like you really didn't like that job and the job was stressing you out. And now you have an opportunity to do something else. So congratulations. And the person was like, oh, oh. And like came up afterwards and like, thank you. That was the slap in the face that I needed. I was in my little pity party and wow, you just. That's so true though. Thanks, I got Chris. laid off, got yeah. laid off from a job when doing administrative work and then had a former partner steal a bunch of my money, like Ooh. completely clean me out. All happened around the same period of time. But, you know, it made me take a risk on my writing that I might not have taken before because what else was I going to do? Well, I just lost my job very unexpectedly. No warning. The savings that I had built up for emergencies got taken. And it was 
it's like, what do you do now? How do you land on your feet in this particular scenario? And I had never used my riding as more than like occasional, a little bit side income. I'd never really made very much money off of it all. I think maybe $200 at the most. And I'm like, how can I take this and turn it into a career? But I think if I had been in a stable income situation, it would have been so much harder to let go of that and let go of benefits and let go of that kind of stability and say, oh, I'm going to try all of a sudden to live as a rider when I've never done it before and I'm not sure that I can. It made me dive in to the deep end and Excellent. swim. And yeah. it was amazing because I did it. And I don't know that I would have if I hadn't just had the rug pulled out from under me. It's like, what are you going to do now? Yeah. And so it, I, I, I definitely also would have been appalled if anyone had congratulated me. But at the same time, it's like, look what it's done to my life. Yeah. And I never would have anticipated that. Yep. Yeah. It opens, it definitely can open up a door. I find for me that I'm most productive when I have, when I have almost too much stress on me, when I feel like, yeah. I, oh my God, like right now I have so many things going on. I have so many plates in the air but I'm actually really getting shit done that probably would have taken me months or weeks to do. I'm getting done in days because I I got the time. I don't have to work hard on it. Now I'm just like, you know what? I need to get this stuff done. And I'm just, I feel like I'm, I'm coming much more alive. It reminds me of like my last, my second to last semester in college, I had 16 core credit hours and I was working 30 hours a week. Um, dating. I just had so much going on. And I was just like, I had to buckle down. I had to really be on top of my schedule. I got a 4.0 that semester. And these were hard, hardcore business classes. They weren't just like your easy thing. I mean, there was a lot of work involved, a lot of projects, um, nailed a whole bunch of things at work. And it was just like, I got done that semester and I was just like, man, that was tough. That felt so good. And because I had that, that stress on me, I had to rise to the occasion to actually do those things and get them done. And I look back, you know, on myself over the last few years and recognize that I definitely slacked a lot because I didn't put that stress on myself because I kept backing off from opportunities. I kept going, getting my feeling overwhelmed and then giving up because, oh, I just got too overwhelmed, which I realized was just an excuse not to step up to the plate and do what I needed to do. And now I've reached, reached that point where I'm just like, no, I'm not going to get overwhelmed by anything anymore. If if I don't get all of this stuff done in the time, okay, that's fine. But if I don't try to get this stuff done in time, you know, it's, it's not going to work. And so I found that putting that stress on myself has actually been much, much better for me than giving myself too much time and, and trying to take it easy on that. And, but there's a balance to that as well. And I, I make sure that I, I schedule in things for, for fun and just relaxation and other stuff like that. Uh, for me, playing piano is very de-stressing. So I will go up and, you know, pound away on my piano for an hour and just really, you know, that, that for me is a good Zen time. So I started pottery. It was the same thing, pottery and gardening, anything where I can get my hands in the dirt. Yeah. But it's so amazing to find those things that kind of can bring you back to yourself. Yeah. Well, we've been on for quite some time here, so I think it's probably time to, to wrap things up. This has been a fantastic talk. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. Like I said, I've, I was always so impressed with your writing because you never went, you never took the easy path. You didn't take that easy path of just getting angry and bashing on men or bashing on whoever was, was what you were talking about. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, what Ricky Gervais said is don't confuse the subject of my jokes with the target of my jokes. And your writing, I feel is very much the same way. 
you may complain about people doing these things, but they're not necessarily the target of what your stories are about. And I think in the end, it always comes back to that self-evaluation. I try not to make it about them in the end. It's about me and what I learned from it, what I can do. And I feel like that's so much more powerful than a laundry list of everything that you hate about other people or wish they had done differently. Does no good at all. Yeah. I think people resonate with that chord of that looking back and saying, this is what I could have done better. And this is what I'm learning from it. Yeah. I think the right kind of people. I think there are people out there who still like to blame everybody else for what's wrong. And we see that a lot in our society. And so for me, it was very refreshing to find that you weren't that way. And so that was why I reached out to talk to you. And also because I haven't had any women on my podcast. Again, I haven't done a lot of interviews, but I want to make sure that I am much more inclusive on those things and have people that mm -hmm. I don't have their experience rather than just talking to the white guys about philosophy. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Oh, excellent. I have too. All right. So thanks again for your time. And uh, we'll go ahead and wrap things up here. And I wish wish you a happy Saturday. And it looks like you've got plenty of sunshine there. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Hey, thanks again, Crystal. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me on. Hey, friends. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. Like always, be good to yourself, be good to others. And thanks for listening. Hello, friends. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to patreon.com slash stoiccoffee and help support this podcast by becoming a patron. Also, swing by our website at www.stoic.coffee where you can sign up for our newsletter and buy some great-looking shirts and hoodies at the new Stoic Coffee Shop. Also, if you know of somebody that would benefit from or would appreciate this podcast, please share it. Word of mouth is always the best way to help this podcast grow. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.